Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, August the 4th, 843-661-0937. Congratulations to the Phillies. They do what they normally do to the Braves. They win about one of every two games. Braves are still two games under 500 against teams with a record over 500. There's your real quick sports update. Don't want to go any further than that, Reb, because yeah. um, the big series starts today, right? Tomorrow. Against uh, tomorrow? Yeah, they don't play today? Yep, yeah, they're off today. So it's a four-game series? Um, I thought um, it was a five-game series. I, I thought that's I why thought they played so too. early yesterday. So they're off too. today? Uh, nope, I take that back. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought they were playing today. <laughs> I looked at the schedule wrong. I looked at it yesterday, and I said, oh, they don't play on Thursday. But, yeah, they do. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought they did. Thursday, Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday. A rare five-game series against the um, National League East-leading New York Mets. The Braves have about 2.3 million fans. They're the most popular sports team in the South. What's the second most popular sports team in the South? I mean, South. forget SEC football. I mean, that, that is, would be kind of a, a congregation of teams. Uh, the SEC football would I may not, I'd probably have more fans than the Braves uh, as a whole, you know, in totality. Uh, but the Braves have about 2.3 million fans. Who's the second most popular sports team in the South? I'll give you a hint. It ain't really the South. Is it? Redskins? The Miami Dolphins. Miami Dolphins. Yeah, the Miami Dolphins have about 2.2 million. We don't call Washington the South, but I, when you said that, I was like, yeah. well, maybe. But Miami's not but, really but, the but, South. But, but And there's also a lot of Redskins fans around here. There I mean, are a there lot are of Redskins sure. fans but, prior to the Panthers becoming the team of choice right. in well, I mean, television markets in the, in the old yeah. day. I can remember Brent Musburger. You ready? I'm dating myself. You are looking live at RFK Stadium. You know, with uh, the pack, excuse me, the um, the Redskins of the Cowboys, the Redskins of the Giants, the Redskins of the Eagles. Um, that was probably the heyday of the NFC East. Uh, back in the day of the the Redskins, the Giants. I mean, all those were good teams. The Philly, I mean, the, the Eagles had a good team. with. I mean, that's back in the day of Reggie Watt being with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, see, I'm, I'm currying favor mm-hmm. with our northern aggressor. He's kind of nodding his head like, we knew Reggie Watt played with the Eagles. I didn't. <laughs> Ron Jaworski was quarterback of the uh, of the Eagles. Uh, but, yeah, the, the Braves have about 2.3 million fans. The Miami Dolphins have about 2.2 million fans. Um, 800,000 of those speak English. Uh, and I don't mean that to be derogatory, but, I mean, Miami's a different there animal. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. That's racially insensitive, uh, I'm sure, and lacks the um, the diversity and inclusion. What is it, diversity? Uh, DEI. What is it? Not Dale and Art Incorporated. It's diversity... Uh, equity, maybe. Yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion. There you go. Um, if you're a NASCAR fan, DEI means Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Sure. If you're um, in the world of politics, it means diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the most popular sports team in the in, in America, Cowboys. Uh, they're they and the Yankees. I mean, the Cowboys and Yankees are running neck and neck with about 10 million fans. I thought that, but the reason I said Cowboys is you talk about how big the NFL it is. is. It is. No, no question about it. Well, let me think about and it. And how shrinking baseball is. It is, but but it's still the Yankees. It's New York City. It's the Bronx Bombers. It's all the legacy that goes along uh, with the Yankees. How many, um, my father-in-law passed away last year. Um, just a huge New York Yankees fan. Why? Why would someone who grew up in Pamplico, be a New York, New York Yankees fan because they were kind of America's team, you know, the Yankees and the Bronx Bombers and Mickey Mantle and all these other sorts of things. I was told by my dad uh, before he passed away that in Little League Baseball, they had a foot race 
And the winner of the foot race got to wear number seven because Mickey Mantle wore number seven. I don't know that we have anything that rivals that today. I mean, kids don't say, I mean, every kid on the team, so my father says, won a number seven. And and so the the coach said, I don't know how to settle this. I mean, I don't want to be both favorites with one kid over another. Tell you what, get on this line. And the kid that gets to the other end fastest gets to wear number seven. So you always knew uh, whatever team you're playing against, number seven can probably run. You know, be careful with um with number seven. I, uh, the Braves play the Mets today, and, and I'll say this. The Braves have to win three of five. I mean, they can't lose this series. If they lose this series, it's clear they're the second-best team in this division. And um, uh, if DeGrom, I mean, I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not, uh, but DeGrom threw four pitches over 100 miles an hour. Did you see that? <laughs> no. I mean, you're worried about is his arm good? You know, he's been injured. Is his arm I mean, good? I he had no offensive support, but what's new? But, I mean, he didn't hurt his arm. Right. You know what I mean? He hurt, I think, another body part is something like right. Soroka. Uh, the Braves are waiting on Soroka to come back because he had an Achilles tendon tear. So it's not your, his arm and DeGrom that wasn't his arm you were worried about. But, yeah, I think he threw three or four pitches in excess of 100 miles an hour. Fastest was 102. Now, wow. I, I read something that said, that's kind of an amp gun, though. That's a fast gun. That's kind of interesting, a fast gun or a or a slow gun. Anyway, let's get back to the uh, to the subject at hand. Uh, that sports report brought to you by Burt of a Thousand Gods. The Braves do play tonight. thought I was right. Yeah. Uh, they do I, play tomorrow. I, at, I was looking at, for some reason, I was looking at next Thursday. I guess they're off next Thursday, yeah. and I had that in my head. They Speaking of today. next Thursday, should we do something for our birthday? I mean, you informed me yesterday. This is how into this I am. Rev informed me yesterday. I think I was leaning back in the chair and said, when did we start this, Rev? I mean, I knew it was in August, or I thought it was in August. Mm-hmm. And Rev said, August 12, 2012 is when we went on the air for the first time ever with Wake Up, excuse me, with um, Good Morning PD. Um, <laughs> how quickly yeah, we forget. Yeah. Sat in that chair over there and basically had a newspaper and just kind of shuffled through the news. I'll never forget it. I said, okay, this looks a little bit interesting. Circle this story. <laughs> um, a cat got stuck in a tree. Okay. Um, a lady ran out of gas and a good Samaritan helped. Okay, we did. And and we did that for about an hour, um, that August 12, 2012. And we didn't do much more than that mm-hmm. for a month or so. And then we began kind of gaining a little traction. So, yeah, next Friday, not tomorrow, next Friday the 12th is our 10-year anniversary. Let me be the one to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be however involved in your life you've chosen us to be. Um, this crazy thing we do every morning is morphed into a um, more of an endeavor than I ever imagined it would. And uh, and here we are 10 years later dominating the markets. Oh, yes. Involving ourselves in critically important political discussions oh, yes. and 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 moving the meter as it has never been moved before. In the realm of American politics. Did you write that down? That's a liner. Yano. Freehold, that's a liner. There you go. Moving the meter as no one ever has in the realm of American politics. We can say that now that Limbaugh has deceased and and gone on to um, to the hereafter. Uh, Multiple people have reached out to me in in, in kind of the most encouraging way. The cathedral is the most fascinating subject. Talking about 10 years being on the air. I mean, there's been interesting. I mean, it's been, it was incredibly interesting to have an opportunity to commentate on the Trump election, to have a kind of a front row seat and watch all that happened that led to him winning the uh, Republican primary, him becoming president, 
of the United States. I don't know how many nights I haven't gone to bed. Um, every night that I haven't gone to bed prior to election night 2016, I was probably too inebriated to know it. <laughs> um, too young to pay any attention to it. I mean, I have had nights in my life where I didn't go to bed, but it was not because I was watching election returns. It was holed up somewhere. I had no business being holed up. Um, but that <laughs> night, I mean, I didn't go to bed. And we began that show. I'll never forget it. You know, God bless America, land that, you know, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her. And it was kind of a, um, it was a poetic moment in Wake Up Carolina's history. And I'll never forget the way I felt. Um, I remember coming in that morning. It's it's weird that I remember this, but remember you used to do your show prep in one of the sales offices mm-hmm. down the hall. That was with the computer mm-hmm. you used to print up Before your show Before we built prep. the studio. Right. And, and I walked in, I just remember walking around the corner and going, goody. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and because um, we talked that day and I said, I mean, I, you know, obviously the poll said he was, I mean, he lost a popular vote, you know, but, but it was the electoral college that we were paying such close attention to. The, 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 here's what I remember about that night. And then we'll get to cathedral. Here's what I remember about that night. My wife is in the bed asleep. I'm, you know, there, the early reports are the Hispanics are voting as they never have before in Florida. So the cathedral's at work. I mean, it's hard at work. I'm trying to convince people on the West coast and the other time zones. You're wasting your time. If you're going to vote for Donald Trump in Arizona and some of these other swing States out West, you're wasting your time. I mean, it doesn't matter what you say in the, in the East Coast about California. I mean, that's not going to, you know, turn an election one way or another, but it does matter in some of the swing states. I mean, if you're an Arizona primary, excuse me, an Arizona Republican, and you hear somebody in the media say, I mean, the Hispanics are voting in Florida as they never have before, it's obvious that this is um, not a good sign for Donald Trump. You'd probably be a little more inclined to say, uh, instead of taking 20 minutes to go vote, I'm going home. You know, I, I kind of, it was a fun ride. It was a, uh, it was a blast to get here, but obviously the pollsters were right. This isn't going to work out. And I mean, obviously I, I mean, I, there, there's strategy in, involved in all that. So I'm in the bed, um, kind of sitting up on two pillows, computer in lap. My wife's already asleep and it begins to turn. I mean, it begins to be, uh, at about, and I told you the story. I got a buddy, Ed McMullen. I've told you this, Ed got a appointed ambassador to Switzerland. So I'm texting Ed, and and Ed's not saying much. He's not confiding in me as much as I wish he would. Um, And all of a sudden, at 10, 15-ish, maybe I get a text, and it says, from Ed, don't go to bed. What do you mean, dude? You can't tell me don't go to bed. I mean, give me more than that. And I said, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, like 100 question marks. And he said, the turnout is overwhelming in western Pennsylvania if we're having that much success in Western Pennsylvania, we're going to enjoy that in Eastern Ohio and the Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio. I mean, it's the same voter. I mean, obviously one votes in Pennsylvania, one votes in Ohio, but that's when, I mean, that's when I, my wife says that I said, he's going to beat him his damn self. <laughs> she said, do I, she's asleep. She said, do I, I said, he's going to beat him his damn self. Everybody in the, in the political world has tried to stop this from happening. You know, the media, academia, I mean, the cathedral. We didn't know it was a cathedral at the time, but the cathedral had worked like they never had before to try and deny we the people our choice for president. And and I just remember the energy I felt. And there's no way I could have gone to bed. I mean, there's no way I could have gone to sleep. I stayed up till about, I mean, I stayed up late after what Brit, Brit Hume say. I don't care who wins. I'm not staying here all night. <laughs> I mean, Hume had been around many, many, many elections. And um, 
when someone said, well, this would have been in 2020, I'm talking about, I'm getting mixed up here. In 2020, when someone said, they stopped counting votes at about 1130. He looks at his watch. He said, what do you mean they stopped counting votes? And when he looked at his watch, he he almost said over the air, I'm not staying here all night. I mean, I've been here a long time. I'm kind of the, the founding member of the Fox News world. I'm not staying here past another 30 minutes. I mean, I'm going home, you know, and uh, I just, so so that is the most fascinating story that I think we have the opportunity to cover. I mean, there have been a lot of other things that we've been excited about and discouraged about and upset about, and we've tried to um, – I have a discussion every morning for five days a week about those subjects and those issues. But the cathedral, to me, is the most fascinating story we've ever covered. Um, as the revelation began happening in my world, as I read, and then I'd flip and I'd read, and I'd scratch my head for a second or two, and I'd read, and I'd go to a YouTube video, and I'd watch, and then I'd read, and then I'd watch, and then I'd read, and then I'd text, and then I'd call, and then I have a conversation with one of these dark enlighteners. It is the most interesting, inquisitive, fascinating story that we've ever covered on Wake Up Carolina. And we're not done covering it. Here's the optimistic part. Here's the uh, encouraging part of this story to me. At least a dozen of you who have my information, my contact, have reached out to me saying, you realize what you're doing? And I said, no, I don't have any clue what I'm doing. I'm going to do my job. They said, no, no, you're explaining something that is so um, complicated to the American, uh, to the listeners. I don't say the American people. That'd be an overstatement of our reach here. But to a to a to an audience that is inclined to be more in tune to politics than most, you're explaining something that we've always known exist. We didn't know what to call it. We didn't know who it was. We didn't know where they were. We didn't know how they got there. We didn't know they deserved to be there. So, so keep going down this road. It is the fundamental issue. And, and Rev, I was thinking about this. I mean, I've got a, um, I've got a plethora of stories here. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I got about eight stories in my hand today that I think we could have a discussion about. They're all kind of interesting to me. Got a Connecticut, Connecticut private school excludes white families from back to school events. Of course they do. Um, Fauci, uh, Burks, and the small print that destroyed America. Uh, Arizona is just beginning. The universal school choice, the radicals won. I read that first. I said the rascals won. Uh, the radicals <laughs> won. Hispanic voters on the move. Kansas vote uh, to uphold constitution, right to abortion, and first ballot measure since Dobbs. So I got a lot of things. Chinese buying all the farmland. I mean, I got a lot of things here we can talk about. There is a lot. But they all, they all converge on the cathedral. So when I began making notes to myself yesterday, how many times had we heard Trump is unelectable? I mean, why would the GOP nominate Donald Trump? He's unelectable. Um, and here's the question I'll pose. And I think this could be an interesting debate this morning. Um, DeSantis is going to make a big announcement today. I have no idea what it is. Um, CPAC starts today. So his announcement is probably in conjunction with CPAC. He basically says, or his staff says, it will make liberal heads explode. Now, there's no way DeSantis is announcing his candidacy for president. I mean, there's no way. I mean, he's waiting on Trump. He'll wait on he's Trump. For governor. Sure. I mean, he's, I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, but he said it'll make um, a major announcement Thursday morning. A spokesperson with the governor's office said, I'm taking a Twitter Wednesday night to Santa's press secretary, Christina Pushaw, teased the impact of the announcement, said it will cause the liberal media meltdown of the year. I have no idea what DeSantis is going to announce. Uh, major announcement tomorrow morning from at Gov Ron DeSantis. Prepare for the liberal meltdown of the year. Everyone gets some rest tonight. Now, that's teasing. 
I mean, I get it. I mean, that, that's trying to draw attention and excitement toward an announcement. Uh, it's not going to be he's running for president. I saw a couple of comments. I mean, he's not waiting on Trump. He's not waiting on Trump. This could be the, um, you know, the, the political story of the year. Now, he'll wait on Trump. I mean, I'll assure you of that. He'll wait on Trump. So, so here's the question I want to ask. For those of you, and there's some of you out there that have convinced yourself Trump's not electable, why? An, uh, g- give me an analysis. I mean, I, I got in a, in a kind of a heated conversation yesterday with a couple of Republicans that I was doing a great disservice, and um, they liked it when I was trying to convince you to not, uh, you know, be supportive of Trump. In other words, let Trump be the kingmaker. Let him be the chairman emeritus. We don't need him on the ballot. Give me a candidate better than Trump not named Ron DeSantis. I mean, we can debate DeSantis and Trump. I think you'll agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can debate whether DeSantis, it's a little bit like bird or magic. Who is better? I mean, are you a Laker fan or a Celtic fan? You know what I mean? I mean, that, that's yep. a fair debate to be had. Um, I could argue that Bird was better. I could argue that Magic was better. I can argue DeSantis is better. I can argue Trump better. Give me a candidate, not named Ron DeSantis, that has a better chance of winning a general election against a, a, a Democrat with all these cathedralist advantages. I mean, remember that. That's not going away. Just because we've identified and we better understand who these people are, who these organizations are, they're not going to say, wow, we've been found out. It's time to raise our right hand and uh, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but truth, so help us God. That's not happening. I mean, the cathedral is still going to enact itself. They're still going to prey upon uh, the, the political agendas, the political institutions. So, so name somebody this morning, because I got a little bit testy with a friend of mine yesterday when he said I was doing a disservice to the Republican Party by continuing to try and convince people that Trump is a very electable candidate moving forward. Give me a, give me the name of a Republican, not named Trump or DeSantis, that you believe could win in 2024. I'm waiting, and I mean that sincerely. Um, now, now, some of these buddies I'm talking to are white-collar. They probably aren't up as early as us blue-collar folk are. But but I want to I want to I want to kind of um, solicit that um, answer more than one time during today's show. I, I want to hear from somebody out there. You can disclose your name or not, but I want to hear a name of a Republican potential candidate for president, not named Trump or DeSantis, that you believe has a better chance to beat the cathedral and the Democrats. Because that's who you got to beat, guys. You're not just running against a Democrat. You're running against the cathedral and a Democrat. Somebody not named Trump, not named DeSantis, that has a chance to win the 2024. I'm tired of people telling me that Trump is not electable. He got 75 million votes when every odd imaginable was stacked against him. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Remember, you're not trying, you're not simply trying to beat a Democrat. You're trying to beat a Democrat and an almighty, all-powerful cathedral that is not going away. Once again, you said Bongino has said similar things in the last several days. Yes. He's not said the word cathedral. He probably hadn't read some of these things I've read, but but he's heading down the road of um of trying to reveal uh, or 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 he was describing bring some of the thing, same things that uh, you've labeled cathedral or that that are labeled in your what you've read in my uh, analysis exactly and 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 so I thought it was interesting because it was the first day you brought it up and then he was talking about it. I think it was Friday. Well, I mean, when you think about it, we'll, we'll, we'll continue down this road. Because once again, guys, 
when we're talking about Trump being elected or not. We're talking about DeSantis being elected or not. We're talking about the House uh, be, t- kind of flipping to the Republicans, the Senate flipping to the Republicans. Who's going to be the nominee in this state? Is Liz Cheney? Everywhere you look, you're bumping into the cathedral. I mean, if you're a conservative, if you're a, um, a right-leaning political thinker or activist, I mean, you're at a disadvantage. Everywhere you look, there's going to be somebody opposed to your worldview, whether it's um, Trump is unelectable, whether the vaccine works, climate change is real, uh, the election was not stolen, um, what exactly is racism, education is the key. I mean, all, all these all these phrases, we've never been allowed to have a debate. We've never had an honest debate about the 2020 election. I mean, the courts basically said, we're not looking there. I mean, I, I called it on the air before it ever happened. I said, guys, you're asking the courts to turn over an election or, or to invalidate election. The courts aren't going to do that. You can forget it. I mean, you'll never have an opportunity to present information. We've never had a debate on the realities. We've had, we've had white papers. We've had PowerPoints. We've had, you know, people with certain opinions. But the cathedral says we're not going to debate whether Trump is unelectable. I mean, once again, in 16, Trump was unelectable. In 20, Trump was unelectable. So in 2024, obviously, Trump is going to be unelectable. If the cathedral didn't fear Trump, you know what they would say? I mean, we're scared to death of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, Trump is the one we're concerned about. We're, we're, no, I mean, the, um, the vaccine works. How many, how many debates have we had in the last two and a half years, genuine, sincere, honest broker debates about the vaccine? None. And if credible people bring it up, they get canceled. Sure. Across the board. Dr. Malone is an epidemiologist and virologist responsible for creating the technology that led to the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine. You know what? They shut him down. They banned him from YouTube. He was not allowed to appear on national television. The New York Times never interviewed him. The Washington Post never interviewed him. All of academia tried to disparage or impugn his integrity. We're not going to have that debate. That is the cathedral, guys. That's not the Democrat Party. Stop focusing solely on the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party's power and influence pales in comparison to the cathedral. Let's go to the phone. Here's JT in Florence. Good morning, JT. Morning, guys. How are you? Hey, JT. Um, so, so, Ken, one thing uh, I do think I, I don't disagree with you at all. I do think the cathedral, and I'd love your opinion on this, loses power if Trump's not in the picture. So, if if he is not running, if he is not the story, look what happens to their ratings. Look what happens to their ability to really motivate people, and look what happens to the coalition and i use that term loosely they've they've put together they start fighting amongst each other among uh, about silly things the the things that just make no sense and you can't be you, you can't be left enough for them as soon as beyonce uses a word that they don't like all of a sudden beyonce of all people is is you know problematic and and needs to be uh, addressed now so if you, I think the world is different if you don't have Trump in it. They they do not have the same power that they would have to to bring up the anger that will that will bring forth people. So, but, but JT, let me ask you this: let's, let's, Okay, I'll I'll agree with that. I'll accept that. But do yeah. they have to exercise if they don't have the power? If Trump's gone, but they don't yeah. have to exercise as a matter of proportionality. We're we're kind of in about the same place. I mean, if there's I if there's think, not somebody there's only about one. Yeah, I think there's only about one person then who could beat him. That's not on your list. Tim Scott. OK, and here's why. All you have to do is blunt some of their normal attacks. 
And we know what they're going to do with Tim Scott. They, they're going to do with him the same thing they've ever done with any black man running for Republican. They're going to try to make him look stupid. They're going to try to make him look this or that. They did it with Ben Carson, who's a neurosurgeon. They'll turn him they, into an Uncle Tom. They, they, their answer to Ben Carson is he's really stupid. He, he was a literal brain surgeon. And and that was their that was their playbook. That's all they needed. Look to do. what they do but to Tim Clarence Scott, Thomas. Yeah. Tim Scott can. I, I've met the guy in person. You know him personally, um, much much better than I do. I think he would win. I I know he'd win South Carolina. So that's the third. That's the first in the South. He'd probably win New Hampshire. New Hampshire sees itself as a more liberal Republican place. They're going to probably back him above anybody else in the field. And I think he'd have a fair shot at winning Iowa, where the evangelical vote tends to have an outsized proportion compared to some other states. And if that happened, he'd win the first three primary states. That's a hard train to stop. I just look, That's my opinion, but you're outside of that, I, I think you're right. There's maybe nobody else. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, JT. That's an interesting point to make. Now, now here's I'll push back a little bit on JT, not to be argumentative. Does Tim provide, and I do know Tim, and Tim is a genuine, good, decent person. I mean that sincerely. I mean, you won't meet a better dude than Tim Scott. Here's where I think we have trouble. Does Tim provide the opposite and equal force? Is Tim willing to do what Trump has already done and DeSantis has led us to believe he'd be inclined to do? Does he provide the opposite and equal force? In other words, if you get a president, Tim Scott, what have you gotten? I mean, see, see, I'm one, and I said it yesterday, and Rev kind of looks at me like, well, I don't know if I'm there yet. I've got the match and the fuse. Rev's trying to stop me from lighting the match, right? Rev says, whoa, man, before you blow this thing up, I mean, what do we replace it with? Where, where do we go from there? I mean, how, how do we rebuild it? Who rebuilds it? What does it look like? When do we, what are we trying to rebuild? Who's got the blueprints? Who's got the plan? I don't give a damn. I mean, I'm on the record. I don't care. I mean, I have such disgust for the cathedral that I'm willing to blow it up and let's figure out um, after the fact. Now, Rev's going like, hey, dude, I want to blow it up, but let's not light that match just yet. I mean, he's got one hand around my wrist going, don't you light that match yet, man, because we don't know what to do once we do blow. Rev wants to blow it up. He's told me that. But he wants to have a plan to rebuild before we light the fuse. I'm willing to light the fuse right now, blow it sky high, and then we'll figure out what to do then. Um, that's kind of the Trump style, right? I mean, DeSantis would be a little more measured than that. Um, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I think Tim could win. I mean, sure, I think he could win. But does Tim provide the opposite and equal force that I think is required to take on uh, the cathedral? Because, guys, we're not going to do this in an election cycle. I mean, it's going to take J.D. Vance getting elected, Blake Masters getting elected. Um, South Carolina's got to elect an America first, a true America first uh, Republican. Um, Michigan's got to elect an America. I mean, this it's going to be it, Donald Trump can't do this. I mean, he's exposed. I mean, he's the necessary infection. Once he gets elected, you see how motivated the cathedral is to make sure he doesn't succeed. So, so uh, he's exposed them for exactly who we've always thought they were, probably more so than we ever imagined. But who provides the opposite and equal force? That's what I'm looking for. And as much as I love Tim Scott, and I mean that sincerely, Tim was a, running against me as a candidate for lieutenant governor until he got out of that race and ran for Congress. And then DeMint leaves and takes the job at the Heritage Foundation. And Nikki makes him senator for South Carolina. And his life has never been the same. And I'm happy for Tim. I'm proud of Tim. 
I just don't know that Tim can provide the the energy it takes to stand against what what could what would come his way. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is next. Hey, Breeze. Hey guys, you know I was ready to talk about religion, racism, and sports, but since we're on Trump, I'll say this, uh, and I'll throw in some religion here too. Just like when Christians have to sometimes stand up and and profess their belief, I think that this time around they're going to go after us twice as hard, and we'll have to be twice as brave, twice as strong. And we'll have to stand up and say, yeah, I'm for Trump. And if you're not for Trump, then you're against this country. And I know there's no middle ground with it. And the biggest problem Trump's going to face is, you know, just in the last election, he ought to hope he learned something. And he got banned from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. All of that, he's going to be fighting all of the networks, all of the social media giants. I think you may get, you know, and I don't know if they have a way to stop these other places like Own and Newsmax from getting his message out. They'll be doing all kind of stuff. I wouldn't put it past them to come up with phony pamphlets and send it to people in their mailboxes, tell them that, you know, that Trump is secret. Yeah, you know, have pictures of Trump in bed with Putin or something. You know, I mean, anything's going to go. You're going to see the nastiest election in the history of this country, maybe going back to the founding fathers. There will be people just like that summer where he had, what was it, 574 riots in one summer, and they're worried about January 6th. When Trump gets, if Trump gets elected, everything you can imagine is going to go on. Be prepared to you know, just have somebody try to punch you in the face. Be prepared if you got a Trump sticker in your yard, they may throw a Molotov cocktail through you one day. If you got a Trump sticker on your car, these people are fighting for keeps. And we can't be daggone fighting in the Marcus Queensberry rules. If we're going to back Trump, you better damn well think it's a daggone war, and you better put on your combat boots. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate the call. That's um, that's well explained, and and I've said that before. You know, this movement is going to require a little blood on your knuckles. I, I don't mean literally. I maybe had a little uh, dirt under your fingernails. I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. But I mean, this is not. See, we want this to happen. But we're afraid to do what it takes to make it happen, to force. I mean, guys, we're trying to fundamentally change a system of influence and power that that, that I think is wicked and evil. I mean, I think there's so much uh, nefarious activity within the political orbit. And I'm not talking about traditionally. I'm not talking about the Biden corruption. I'm not talking about Biden getting his brother and, and son, you know, jobs and making a bunch of money and get them on a board. I mean, that, that's not a Democrat's. I mean, the Democrats are not the only ones that have ever put their son or, or brothers on corporate boards and set them up in business deals to make them wealthy. I mean, the cathedral is is um is bipartisan. I'll assure you of that. I mean, they, there are example after example after example of corruption within the Republican Party. That's the point I'm trying to make. This is not an R versus D. So, I mean, this is... I mean, I think Bree said it. This is us versus them. Us being those who feel powerless, left out, not involved in the way we uh, manage the country's political affairs. What we've got to do is go down the road. I know we've got to take a break here. What we've got to do is is when someone says about, about the 2024, let's, let's assume Trump runs and he wins the primary. Um, if there's a contested primary, I mean, Liz Cheney or Larry Hogan, some, you know, some traditional conservative Republican will be convinced that, you know, America needs you. I mean, America, somebody's got to block Trump from getting the nomination. I'm um, good luck with that because the Republican party has already decided, you know, it's an America first party. It's going to vote for an America first candidate. So let, let's make the assumption that Trump runs. 
What we've got to do is turn the argument into, really, you're not voting for Trump? I mean, to your fellow Republicans, to the white, educated, suburban moms, I'm sorry, I'm after you again, because you are terribly disappointing when it comes to this. To the affluent, educated, white female, we got to have you. And, and we're going to embarrass you. I mean, you know, you allowed this to happen. I mean, $4 gasoline is on your watch. Uh, you know, double-digit inflation is on your watch. Um, crime in the streets, rampant crime. Uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a dementia-ridden old man in the wild. I mean, all this is on you. The Democrats did what the Democrats are supposed to do. You know what they did? They voted for the Democrat. You allow this to happen. Are you going to let that happen again? Really? How unpatriotic are you, you white, educated female? How how um how un-American are you? I mean, don't let them indict you for your support of Trump. If you're a conservative-leaning voter, indict them. Embarrass them into voting for Trump. Maybe they hold their nose, maybe they don't. But that's where this discussion has evolved, and we've allowed this to happen. Um, we, we whisper our support of Trump. You know, we mumble under our breath our support of Trump. If you're a Republican and don't support Donald Trump if he runs, shame on you. You're not really a Republican. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, I was thinking about this during the break, during the break, top of the hour before we got to Reggie. It's a little bit like my brother. I mean, my brother and I can argue with one another. He can get mad with me. I can get mad with him. But you better not say something about him. Trump and I uh, have, have a real, I mean, I, you know, he drives me crazy at times. And I, I question, Donald, why would you do that? Why? I mean, Trump doesn't know, from, know me from Adam's house cap. But, but, I feel like I do. You know what I mean? I feel like I've known the guy. I feel like I know the guy. I feel like I've walked the walk with him and, and traveled the road with him. And I feel like I've supported him at every time I could. And he's made it hard at times and, and complicated at other times. But but the last couple of days when someone attacks me for beginning to say that I think Trump is the inevitable candidate, he's the best candidate, um, I, I want to defend him. I mean, there's just something I have inside of me that wants to defend the guy in a way that I normally would not if these people weren't saying that. In other words, Trump and I have this brotherly relationship. I mean, obviously, it's one-sided. He doesn't know me at all. I mean, he doesn't care who I am, what I say. He liked my accent, remember? Yeah. Uh, but he's from Queens. He's the guy with the accent. <laughs> but but when my three friends, and these are dear friends of mine, and they have sound judgment, but when they began kind of questioning why I am all of a sudden trying to push people toward Trump running again, it offended me. I mean, I got defensive, and I, and I said, um, give me a candidate better than Trump. I mean, we, we can debate DeSantis. I mean, I think you nodded your head. I mean, you're a Trumpster. I'm a Trumpster. I'll debate. I think that's a fair debate. Are we better off in 24 with Trump or DeSantis? Let's sit down and have a cup of coffee and discuss that. But if we're talking about Trump and anybody else, there's no date debate to be had. I'll ask you this question before we go to our call. Will 75 million win it again? I mean, if Trump got said, give me a Republican candidate not named Trump that can get you 75 million votes. I mean, really think about that. I mean, I understand absentee ballots and mail-in and COVID and Zuck bucks and all these other things that went into the 2020 election that Biden supposedly got seven, uh, 81 million votes. Mm -hmm. Give me another Republican candidate that you believe can generate the sort of turnout that leads to 75 million votes, and is 75 million enough? See, I'll take 75 million today. Give me Trump and 75 million, and I, I'll, I'll roll the dice. I'll take my chances there because we're not going to have absentee ballots. We're not going to have mail-in. We're not going to have drop by. We're going to have some of that. 
but it won't be anywhere near the opportunity that the Democrats had in 2020 to manipulate the system as they did. So, yeah, I mean, I'm on the record. Give me Trump and give me 75 million votes, and I'll take my chances. Let's go to the phone. Carl in the PD. Hey, Carl. Hey, um, hey Ken. Okay. Ken, kind of, kind of sit back, because I'm not going to be long, but I'm just going to tell you why I'm disagreeing with you, and it, of course, is not personal. But I, I think that um, it will be, or it, it definitely should be and can be and probably will be a Trump DeSantis ticket, and here's why. All right. Number one, when is the, well, you know the, the, the presidential election is in when? 2024, correct? Mm-hmm. When is DeSantis' re-election? Uh, is it 22? This year. Yeah, he's running this year. Statistically, what do you think there's a chance that he's not going to win his, re- his re-election? Oh, there's a chance, but very little. Very little chance that he won't win. So correct. he will be the sitting governor of Florida. And so he does not have to run for his governor's seat in 2024. So if he runs as the vice president, win or lose, he's still governor and he's still a great guy and he can still run whenever he wants to for president. That's number one. There is no downside to DeSantis running with Trump. That's the first part. That's the first part. And DeSantis is not leaving Florida. Here's the second part. Um, people talk about, well, you don't want to have the president and vice president coming out of the same state. You can't. Well, it's against the law. Well, okay. Okay. Hold up. There, there's, a, there's a slim chance that Donald Trump has other houses somewhere other than Florida that he can move to and live in that, that would make him a candidate that doesn't live in Florida. Matter of fact, as, as far as I know, he's already moved out of Mar-a-Lago. I don't know he's even there. And here's the third, because so so it would involve him leaving um, Florida, which is no no big deal because the state that Trump is from is where New York, United States, mm-hmm. well, United States. Okay, he's he's from the brain of whoever's supporting him. Now here's the third part, and this is why it will work. Um, the only the only thing to juggle with Trump's, you know, Trump's life and him moving from Florida is Baron Trump. Do you know how old Baron Trump is right now? I would imagine 17, 18-ish. He's 16. Okay, 16. Meaning, meaning that he's finishing up high school this year, next year, and he's going to be in college when Donald Trump, or going to college when Donald Trump runs for president. And Donald Trump can just say, well, I want to, you know, I want to live, you know, we want to live near where Barron is going to school or Barron wants us to live near here. He'll, he'll, you know, whatever he wants to say there. And Melania, Melania does not want to live in Florida, period. She never did. So there's everything pushing Donald Trump out of Florida, everything pushing him out of Florida. And he, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up living in California. I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up living in South Carolina. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes back to New York because guess who just died? His first wife. And he could say, well, we just have some, you know, some, some things to tie up here. And he could just leave Florida. So 
that Trump DeSantis thing, there's no downside for DeSantis because even if he loses that Trump DeSantis race, he keeps his seat as governor and he 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 um solidifies he solidifies his position as the front runner for 2028 if they lose. So that's all I got to say. Thank you, Carl. That's a lot. I don't. The only thing I disagree with is there's no downside for DeSantis. I think there's great downside in being a loser. Uh, on a ticket as vice president. I think there's great downside to that. And if Ron DeSantis, I mean, I said, I don't know Trump. I don't know DeSantis either. But if Ron DeSantis and I sat down to discuss his political future, I would strongly discourage him from agreeing to be Donald Trump's running mate. I just think that is not in his political best interest. He could be the next generation. I mean, obviously, if you know Trump's going to win, yeah, you accept the, um, uh, the nod. But I just, I think Trump is a risky candidate. We all have to admit that. Um, I looked at the odds this morning. Trump is still the odds-on favor to be president of the United States in 2024. I mean, you can't vote on it in America. You can in London. And some of the London betting houses, I think it's plus 350, somewhere thereabout. I mean, he's a, he's a slight favorite over, I think, DeSantis. I mean, I think DeSantis may be. Uh, it's DeSantis, Biden, Harris. Um, AOC's actually showing up on the board now. Nikki Haley shows up on the board now. Um, Larry Hogan. AOC, really? AOC shows up on the board. Really? Yeah, she's at like plus twelve hundred or somewhere there, about I higher mean, than number. I understand number. she gets a lot of attention. Well, she's she, celebrity she's, or whatever. That but. seems to matter. I mean, it does. That seems to be the culture that we're wow. in today. And, and I don't disagree with anything Carl said about you know where you live and um, and how do you get out of that tangle. I mean, that's not hard. Trump's a kind of a um. I mean, Trump's an international man. I mean, he's got houses all over the world, so it's not hard to say, I live in Aspen now. I live in Vail now. I live in, in, in New York again. I live in, you know, in, in South Carolina. I live on the coast. of. I mean, that, yeah, that's not, that's not hard at all for him to do. I mean, he has money and um, notoriety, so he can do whatever he chooses to do. They can get entangled that web pretty easily. Um, DeSantis can't leave because he's sitting governor of Florida and will be again in 2024. So I don't disagree with anything Carl said except the downside part. I think there is great downside for Ron DeSantis being Donald Trump's running mate and them losing in 2024. That diminishes his reputation, his image, his brand. And I just think a guy his age doesn't need to risk it. Um, Not being a second fiddle. Once again, um, DeSantis has a very, very bright future. Losing is never good in American politics. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, if Trump loses in 24, we might as well close the doors because we're done as a nation. Um, I was reading an article yesterday. The assistant director of agriculture there at Clemson, they're, they're doing this sustainable farming experiment and he was talking about well we've got to leave these places untouched the greenery because if you expose the roots you release all that carbon back into the air now unless i was taught wrong in school i always thought photosynthesis was where the plants took in the carbon dioxide and gave us oxygen but that might have changed I don't know if you're getting the same thing I am, Ken, but I, I donate quite a bit to, you know, our candidates here and to the RNC and the, to the Congressional uh, Caucus. But I'm getting a lot of, uh, what do you call them, polls, 
what do you think? And along with every one of them, you have to, you know, give 50 100 $200. And then I'll get this thing in the mail that says you're a gold medal lifetime member of the Republican Party, and we appreciate you. And the next day I get one that says, are you a Democrat? You haven't donated in the last 32 seconds. <laughs> I get those as well. Yeah. I know they'll guilt you into giving. I went so far as to call the RNC headquarters and said, if you send me another email to ask me if I've turned to a Democrat, I'm done with you. And the little girl that answered the phone, she said, believe it or not, I get those same emails. So I don't know who's running their campaign, but there's, you know, if I wasn't such a dedicated uh, conservative, I wouldn't give these people a dime because you, I counted last month, just for grins, 1,327 emails requesting funds from the Republican Party and candidates all over the country. So they just take your your information and they farm it out. And, hell, you'd have to win the lottery every six months to keep up with these people. <laughs> Thank but you, Joe. Well, I mean, appreciate that. We got John Decker on the phone here, but Joe's exactly right. I mean, if you ever give money to a Republican or a Democrat, for that matter, I mean, my world has historically been Republicans, you get on a list. And once you're on that list, there's no getting off. I mean, if you've ever given $100 to the Republican National Committee or the Senatorial Committee or a candidate in the Republican Party, you get on this list. And as a former candidate and someone who has run for office, um, I still got a list. I mean, I've kept the list, uh, Andy. So when, um, and I'll tell you what I do. I mean, it, it, this didn't, I guess this is Republic edification. If someone's running for office, I mean, I'll give you an example. Somebody's running statewide now in South Carolina, just won the Republican primary. I sat down and had a cup of coffee with this person before they won uh, the primary, and they asked me for my list of people in, you know, my home precincts and my home area that had historically contributed to Republican, and they cross-referenced that list with, with their own list. And then they'll call you and say, could you call them and ask them if they'd support? I mean, it's, it's all about, I mean, money is the mother's milk of American pie. I wish it weren't the case, but it really and truly is. The dilemma the Republicans have is Trump has um, just, just sucked so much money out of that ecosystem. I mean, I think Trump's got north of 125 or $30 million in Save America that would have normally gone to the RNC and the other traditional Republican causes. And that's kind of a, um, I mean, that's kind of a rub that the Republican hierarchy has with Trump but um, right now, people are more interested and willing to give money to Trump's organization than they are the traditional um, giving that the Republicans have benefited from. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Ken. Hope you're having a great week so far. We are. Tuesday uh, was an interesting day. Primary results um, all over the place. Kansas, we've talked a lot about the abortion issue in Kansas was a surprise. Not necessarily that the vote turned out like it did, but the margin. Arizona was a particular interest to me. Two Trump-endorsed candidates, one running for governor, one running for the U.S. Senate. What do you make of all that happened in Tuesday's primaries? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Kansas first, because I think that that is uh, what also uh, is uh, at the top of my mind. Uh, the turnout was remarkable in Kansas, uh, turnout like we typically see during a presidential election, and this was on a primary day. So that's number one. Number two, we're talking about a red state, and a red state for an abortion measure to 
fail the way it did in a red state where registered Republicans far outnumber registered Democrats is pretty remarkable. And the big question is, and it's unanswered. I don't know the answer to this, Ken. Uh, Can we extrapolate what happened in terms of energy and turnout from Kansas to the midterm elections? Because if that's the case, then Democrats uh, ought to be pretty pleased by what happened in Kansas. They would believe, if you hear them uh, talk at the White House or anywhere else, that their base is very energized for the midterms because of the Supreme Court ruling, which overturned Roe versus Wade back at the end of June. And, John, I also believe, I mean, I'll opine for just a second. I think you're right. I mean, I think it does add excitement to the Democrat side. They don't have a lot right now to be excited about when you look at some of the underwater polling of the president. But I still believe that the Republicans are going to have a hard time taking yes for an answer because in the referendum question, um, it talks about rape, incest, life of the mother. Um, most of Americans are reasonable about abortion. They, they don't b- agree with late-term abortions, but they certainly don't believe a woman who has been raped should be forced to have that baby. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting factors in there. South Carolina is about plus 10 red. Kansas is probably plus 17, 18-ish. So the margin of victory was alarming, uh, to say the least. I want to shift gears and go to something sure. you would know much more about than I would. Um, okay. And that is the um, the state of the uh, what they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act. Joe Manchin has said he's a supporter. We're waiting on Kirsten Cinema. What do we know about the senator from Arizona? Yeah, what we're waiting on is her decision as to whether or not she will support this legislation. It will be voted on in the Senate this week, and she is the only undecided vote among Democrats. If all Democrats stick together, uh, this bill can pass through the budget reconciliation process, which only requires a majority vote. And uh, already Joe Manchin has made it known that he supports this measure, and uh, that's 49 out of 50 Democrats. Kristen Sinema, the only Democrat... uh, whose uh, vote is unknown. And, uh, you know, look, I I think that she's weighing a lot of things. Uh, She comes from a purple state. She'll be up for re-election in a few years. Uh, There's talk of her being primaried from the left. Uh, All of that she has to weigh as she makes her decision on this particular issue. Last subject I want to touch on with you, John. Thank you for your time. With Great Television's senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker, is Sweden and Finland um, added to the membership of NATO. What do we make of that? Well, uh, yeah, it passed. uh, You could certainly argue overwhelmingly one senator voted against their membership. That was Josh Hawley of Missouri. Uh, So it's 95 to 1 in the U.S. Senate. Uh, It strengthens NATO. It strengthens uh, the security for Finland and Sweden. You know, just leading up to this vote, I interviewed both uh, the Finland ambassador to the U.S. and the Swedish ambassador to the U.S. They're both pleased by this, and uh, they should be because they saw what happened in Ukraine uh, with Russia uh, illegally invading Ukraine. They did not want the same thing happening to them. That's the reason why they sought NATO membership, and uh, they will be official members of NATO, uh, likely in a matter of maybe weeks even, because now 20 out of 30 NATO countries have approved the membership application of Sweden and Finland into NATO. So just a matter of weeks before the other 10 nations also vote on that, like our Congress, our Senate did yesterday. Well-informed. Thank you, John. Appreciate your time. You're always um, quite the addition to our Thursday morning attempt, and um, have a great weekend, sir. 
Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thanks for having me on today. Talk to you next week for sure. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Kind of, we always feel it important to hear a voice inside the belly of the beast, inside the Beltway. John's at the White House every day. He's a seasoned reporter. He's been there a long, long, long time. Um, uh, probably not uh, in lockstep with my political leanings and beliefs and biases, but um, very informative nonetheless on what is happening up close and personal i want to go down uh, real quick and i know we got a call and we'll get there in two seconds i don't think i've done the 725 page bill justice it's about a half trillion dollars it's called the inflation reduction act um let's do a gi joe with the kung fu grip you ready um, i don't want to go into high, percentage of incentives and uh, how many kilowatts and megawatts and all these other sorts of things in green energy and and conventional fossil fuel producing um energy but it's got a lot of green goodies for some of the union um, contractors, some of the union operations, uh, a lot of incentives, a lot of tax credits for renewable um, energy. A couple of things that caught my eye. I mean, I've not read the 725 page. I did read some of the uh, summation and, and and basically the um, the narrative of the bill. I read an article in the American Conservative last night about the bill, late yesterday afternoon about the bill. Um, something interesting, um, the tax credits for renewable energy products, uh, excuse me, projects, is five times more generous if the contractor is paying prevailing wage. Now, what in the hell is a prevailing wage? Tell you what it is. It's a union wage. I mean, it's a, it's a payoff to unions. Uh, really and truly, when you look through the 725-page bill, and once again, I've read the summary and the narrative, not read the bill. I'm not going to read 725 um, pages about tax credits for solar and wind. Uh, we're talking about, you know, $5.20 per megawatt, um, some of the incentives, $26, a subsidy. If it's, um, if it's in some of the, uh, what, what am I, I think the word they use is um, environmentally just communities. In other words, um, some of these states that have embraced green energy. Uh, once again, I'm giving a GI Joe with a Kung Fu grip. Um, it is loaded with union favoritism. I mean, it's littered with union favoritism, tax credits, incentives, um, a lot of the words I, I think I read multiple times in the um, carbon sequestration. <laughs> this is another what? way. Yes, carbon sequestration uh, for manufacturing and, and what fossil fuel combustion, I guess, would be another way. Uh, they're talking about $35 per ton of CO2 um, captured in stores. Some of the carbon tax we've talked a lot about. I mean, it's, it's, it's really and truly when you, when, you, when you kind of break it down, it is a, uh, it's a payoff to unions. It's a, it's a big incentive package for uh, the green energy business and, and industry, which is highly incentivized. And um, you, know, you get a lot of tax credits and um, some of the regulation toward um, fossil fuel is to force the continued, I don't know, Rev, um, I would call regression <laughs> of leaving fossil fuels into providing power for green energy. But the majority of it is green goodies, uh, favored unions, Projects located in specific regions, by that I mean the environmentally just um, states will be treated one way. I'll give an example on the the unions. Um, A state that is a right-to-work state receives far less incentives and tax credits than a state that favors uh, some of the unions. As part of this, I went back and read last night about, you know, the public sector, private sector unions. I've talked a lot about this eventual conflict that is coming between private sector workers and the public sector. Um, in the private sector, about 5 to 6% of all jobs are union. I mean, we've had a, a significant decline in union membership of the private sector, union busting, 
was kind of a um, something that we talked a lot about in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s. So we're down to a point now that about 5 to 6% of all the jobs in the private sector are, are union. 30%, one in three, it's about 32%, one in three jobs in the public sector are union. That's kind of interesting. We've seen a tremendous decline in union membership and collective bargaining and all these other sorts of things uh, in the private sector, but one in three jobs in the public sector are unionized. So when you read the language of the bill, it highly favors states that advance and advocate for union membership, and uh, that gets more expensive. I mean, we know the story of American Union and some of the deindustrialization that came along with that, but once again, I will not try and bore you with 725, um, kind of the complete narrative of the 725 Pay, but it's, it's, I mean, it's green goodies, it's tax incentives, it's, um, it's tax credits, it's a lot of other sort of um, incentivization. I mean, it, it just incentivizes green energy. I mean, it just incentivizes, further incentivizes. It incentivizes all green energy. It further incentivizes green energy located in environmentally just places that pay prevailing wages. There you go. That wraps it up in one sentence. And the prevailing wage is basically union-scale wages. So if you're in a green state with a union business, you're going to do, and the green energy, you're going to do amazingly well in this bill. And I think Manchin gets beat. I mean, I'm ready to say it. If Manchin, if this bill becomes law, and a credible candidate in West Virginia runs as a Republican, it'll be the end of Joe Manchin's political career. Really? He ain't that damn good a politician. I mean, he's a good one, and, and he's relatable he's to the people of West Virginia. When he made this decision? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there's a couple of um, iffy paybacks in here. And when, when you look at a couple of um, a couple of items in particular, I'll try to find one Interesting. and illustrate it, but there's, there's a couple in here that are friendly to a particular West Virginia business. A particular West Virginia business does exceptionally well under, I mean, you got to read between the lines and it's not, it's not, Hey, Manchin said he'll vote for it. If we do this for the business that has raised him a lot of money over his political life. I mean, it's kind of um, ambiguous and you got to dig in and try to understand it. But um, yeah, it, it looks to me that there's somewhat of a payoff in here for Manchin's uh, one of the, one of the businesses that have made enormous political contributions to him during his political career, but he's not that good a politician. He's a good politician, and he's very relatable to the people of West Virginia. But, I mean, I can't imagine Kirsten Cinema may end up saving him his job. If they don't get this passed by Labor Day, I don't think it gets passed because I think, you know, we get to real close to the midterms, and, you know, at the same time somebody's running an ad. I mean, can you imagine Herschel Walker saying, you know, in the middle of a recession, Warnock wants to raise your taxes? Because it raises taxes. I mean, there's no question about it. The thing that concerns me is the nearly $100 billion they want to give the IRS to hire more agents to audit middle-class working families. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the IRS is going to get about $90, $90 billion to hire, um, what, 8,500 agents that will exclusively target and audit the American middle class. Mm. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's not real discreet. When you break some of the language down, I'll try to find exactly how it's printed. And once again, they, you know, there's a reason to take 725 pages. If you can't, if you can't convince them with the truth, you confuse them with the BS. And 725 pages of BS gets real, real, <laughs> real confusing. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side and, uh, and go to the phones. But I'm going to say this real quick. This is a bill that increases taxes, um, incentivizes businesses that, favor green energy that pay prevailing wages. 
environmentally just states that pay prevailing wages. In other words, green states that, you know, support the union. Here's Cinema's problem. Arizona's a right-to-work state. And it's pretty obvious to me that this removes some of the competitive advantages that right-to-work states have over um, some of the non-right-to-work states. And that may be Cinema's. Cinema's mad because they didn't include her in the conversation. Schumer went to Manchin for a couple of days. They worked behind the scenes on what he could live with, what he couldn't live with. And Cinema's, you know, her feelings got hurt. So um, the combination of her feelings getting hurt and it may remove an advantage that Arizona has in competing against some of the um, some of the more labor intense states. Um, she's from what I understand, Cinema's checking with her chamber of commerce to find out whether or not. But it is a bill that increases taxes. You care to predict which way she'll go? The longer she waits, the better. Okay. The longer she holds out, the less likely it is to become um, a past piece of legislation. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. Uh, uh, great show as always. Uh, I think uh, all this uh, talk about the Stannis Trump ticket and all that, that's a moot point. If we don't take care of the election that's coming up in uh, November, uh, I, I think that's a moot point. But I also agree with Joe if if uh, Trump or DeSantis or whoever's uh, heading the ticket doesn't win in 24, we're in a male of a hess. It's going to be real trouble. But uh, I appreciate you uh, explaining for uh, everyone's benefit and uh, the cathedral and uh, this uh, uh, symphony orchestra that seems to be playing just and perfectly synchronized. That's uh, something to think about. But uh, if we don't make this election uh, work com- that's coming up in November, I think uh, that we're we're done. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I started the show this morning, and I'll say it again. Until I started reading about the cathedral, there were two things that stuck out to me. Trump winning in 16. That was fascinating to be in the middle of that, to watch it up close and personal, to see the unexpected happened. I mean, that's always fascinating. The upset is always intriguing. Um, you know, I don't want to call Trump David, but David beating Goliath is always uh, an interesting subplot in any facet of life. Um, the other is the Fed. I mean, when I began reading about the Fed, trying to understand the Fed, um, the more I read, the more confused I got until I became, I don't want to say a student of the Fed, but okay, I get it now. They're cotton checks. I mean, you know, again, you know, the majority of people go to jail for cutting checks, but the Fed does cut checks and they just don't go to jail. They make all the rules. But the cathedral and the argument I've tried to make a little bit Friday, all day Monday, all day Tuesday, some of yesterday and, and a little bit of today is by far the most fascinating topic that I've studied, researched, tried to give opinion on since we've been on the air. I mean, Rev and I celebrate our 10th anniversary next Friday, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, we will have been on the air, thanks to you folks, 10 years. So this nonsense has a lifespan. Um, How long? I don't have any idea. We we think we'll make it 10 years because we don't think anything will happen. Well, the boss is coming to town Monday. Uh, Yeah, may not make it to 10 years. Be careful here before we jump the gun here. But um, but no, the the cathedral and the storyline of the cathedral is the most fascinating political story that I've talked about over these airwaves since I've been doing this for 10 years. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hey, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, so if you remember your uh, Washington Redskins history prior to the 70s, uh, the song used to say, fight on for old Dixie instead of old D.C. And 
And Ken, we used to back in the nineties, we used to fight over Chipper Jones number number ten. So um <laughs> but so why does the America First movement or our side and not look at or embrace Tulsi Gabbard and maybe talk about why not her uh for for a VP pick for, for Trump? I mean, she is absolutely hated by the Democrat Party. Uh, so much so that you know, uh, Hillary Clinton called her a, a, a Russian asset or a Russian plan or something. You know, she didn't go to – she dropped out of college. Uh, so, I mean, she is one of us with some liberal thought processes, uh, but she brings so much to the table. And she does check some boxes that we might not be able to check, but – I get your ideas on that. Ken. Thank you, John. I think you're nailing it, man. I think you got to look out of, out of don't look at the normal political candidates. Tulsi Gabbard would be an excellent complimentary addition to a Trump ticket. No question about it. I mean, we understood in 16 Mike Pence, right? You got to bring a solid guy. You got to bring conservative, uh, conservative and consistency and doing the right thing. I mean, we think of Mike Pence, you think of a conservative and a Christian and consistency and you know, a life's worth of just doing the right thing. I mean, he's kind of boring. He's a little bit of a stuffed suit, but he's a good guy. And I think, you know, people needed uh, to be comfortable with a guy they weren't sure was consistent or conservative with somebody who they were sure was. Uh, but I think this is different. But I think the, the public have an appetite to do something unique. I said it and I'll say it again. You give the American public a chance today, especially the Republican electorate, to do something that is and was or something that could be, they'll take you up on the could be. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. We've got some guests here. Before we take care of our guests, we got to take care of another guest who's been with us. He's a repeat offender to Wake Up Carolina. Jeff Manasso is in Chicago with Fox News Radio. Jeff, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. So we're going to pump the brakes a bit. I mean, we've been on Arizona primaries and all these political controversies going on in America. I want to talk a little bit about retirement. I mean, I'm at the age to, that I began thinking about retirement. I mean, I know I can't retire because I like spending money too much. But but you, you're you going to talk a little bit about this study that says 80% of financial professionals have changed their approach to retirement planning this year. Why and how so? Yes, so we're starting to think long term about where we're where we're going, uh, you know, financially, also as a country, you know, what that would mean for our own pocketbooks. And as, as older Americans prepare for retirement, about four out of five say they're growing increasingly concerned about rising inflation and recession, according to a new study from uh, Alliance for Lifetime Income and Canex. Eighty-one percent of people ages forty-five to seventy-five say they're worried about their reduced spending power in retirement. We've already seen that uh, in real time now, uh, a reduced power in, <laughs> in spending. Another 79%, according to the Protected Retirement Income and Planning Study, it's a second study, say uh, that they're, they're worried about recession driving the economy down and impacting their retirement income. Um, those reports, as inflation continues to surge, 40-year high uh, in June, now 9.1%, marking the fifth time it's broken that, that record this year. Um, so uh, as anxiety over inflation grows, some Americans have started making financial adjustments. About 60% of respondents saying they're, they're cutting back on spending. Not, 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 not anything new, uh, but as the economy gets worse, we're just saying, okay, look, 
I might not take that trip. The gas prices are, are, are surging. I might not make that investment because I need to probably consolidate the debt, the high interest debt that I have now, uh, which is the advice that we're given according to these studies. If you get a bunch of debt, high interest debt, probably best thing to do right now uh, is to protect yourself. Consolidate personal loans, get that stuff paid down. And, and a lot of people are, are, are turning to paying off high debt uh, do, you know, as they see long term. Uh, some problems coming our way and, and, and no easy fix at this point. And so that's where we're at. We're not spending a lot of money. Uh, and, um, and, and, and we're, 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 we're kind of zooming inwards and, and trying to uh, go into protection mode to make sure that we're good. Very well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. You too. So you want the non-official version of where we are in retirement and why it's such a quandary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fed has become incredibly activist. I mean, in the last, I mean, the Fed printed about a trillion dollars in its first 90 years of existence. It's printed about 13 trillion cents. I mean, think of that. Since 2010, uh, since 2009, the Fed has infused about 13 trillion dollars of fiat currency into the economy. The biggest beneficiary of the infusion of cash and liquidity has been the markets. I mean, it really has. If you think about 0% interest rates, let's say Rev has a million dollars. And you, and you, well, I mean, seriously, I mean, I know that's a little bit of money for you, but I mean, let's just, All right. I mean, yeah, let's say that. I like the way take, that sounds. Just take the pay cut yeah. and let's, let's assume you don't have you. multiple millions. You only have a million. So Rev's got a million dollars mm-hmm. and Rev doesn't want to roll the dice and invest in, in equities because he's a little bit nervous about getting a little older and don't want to take that chance. Don't have enough time to um, weather another downturn. So Rev invests in stocks and, I mean, excuse me, in bonds and, and other alternative money market CDs. Well, at 0% interest, the short-term return is not good. So Ref has to do something other than what he's comfortable doing. So all of a sudden, supply and demand. There's a, I mean, I'm just using this number. There's a thousand shares of Exxon outstanding. Rev would rather have his money in a money market paying four and a half percent, but because of the Fed's activism, he can't do that. So he's got to go buy Exxon. So all of a sudden, I mean, it doesn't change the, the supply of Exxon stock. It's still the same, but the demand of Exxon stock increases because Dave Baker doesn't want to take his money and get one and a half percent, less than one percent in a money market or a CD, so he's all of a sudden a player in the market. So it distorts supply and demand. It significantly manipulates the, the, what I'd call the, um, the economic realities that need to exist if the Fed were not as activist as they were. So the Fed prints about $13 trillion in capital. They give it to these preferred lenders. That's J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. That ain't the community bank on the street corner in Pamplico. I'll assure you of that. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that never make its way down to Main Street. So the quandary is this. There are so many Americans dependent upon that stock portfolio to provide their passive income, their retirement income. Um, What is the number? I mean, my father would always say, when I talk about a fixed income, that dad would always say, it ain't a problem if it's fixed, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a big problem if it ain't fixed, right? I mean, it is rubbing it, but he was always saying a fixed income is real good. If it's fixed good, (laughs) it's not such a good thing. Um, So so here's the problem. The Fed knows that they have created this debt bubble. They've created this asset bubble, what I call the, the asset bubble of all asset bubbles, and that is the inflation in the stock market. Um, What would the market be valued if the Fed had a normal balance sheet, if the Fed, uh, once again, a trillion dollars in a hundred years, thirteen trillion in the last twelve, what would Wall Street, what would the S and P be today, if not for Fed activism? 
So, so the Fed knows that. I mean, some of the Fed governors, they won't say it publicly, but you read some of the minutes and they'll say, we've got a problem on our hand. I mean, we've created this asset bubble, but but what? how can they renege on the activism if it causes your portfolio to decrease by 60%? You see where I'm headed? Right. So many people are dependent upon that investment income to provide a quality of life in retirement. And the Fed's has got themselves in, in a no-win. The market has to go. Oh, way it has down. to go way. There's a huge correction, if not for Fed activism. Here's the um. Here's the radio show host in me. You ready? Here's the guy that tries to scare everybody to death. The Fed is going to have to correct at some point in time. I don't have any idea what that number is. An economist at George Washington doesn't have any idea what that number is. There is a point of no return. There is a day that the dollar is not the value or the preferred currency that it has been since the end of the Second World War. I mean, the dollar has been the preferred currency in international exchange since the conclusion of the Second World War. There will be a day that we auction debt from the federal government and people say, I'm not sure. I mean, I've looked at their balance sheet, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, some of the European Union nations. Now, some of this is intra-government debt, government agencies lending money to gov- other government agencies, but that's where it gets complicated, and that's what... I'm concerned about. And when I think about, um, I, once again, the radio show host in me, I believe that what's headed our way, you ready? I'm going to scare the daylights out of you. Because you, I mean, I, you, you sat with me long enough. You know I have a weird way of saying it, but you think I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. <laughs> That's what scares you. It's just like, I know he says it crazy, but I swear we always kind of end up where he says we're going to, the dollar is going to be worth about 35 to 40% less. Oh. And, and our kids and grandkids will enjoy a quality of life, standard of living. Let me see standard of living. Quality of life is up to you. A standard of living is another thing. If money makes you happy and you put your happiness in the dollar, you're going to be about 30% less happy than you would have been because the standard of living in America is going to decline commiserate with the value of the dollar. I mean, it's unavoidable. I mean, the math is the math. I mean, 27 degrees is 27 degrees. I don't care if you're an engineering school at Northwestern or UCLA or Texas A&M, um, two plus two equals four at USC, Clemson, or Harvard. Doesn't matter. And I think economic realities will eventually prevail. And there, there's a hard lesson to be learned. Um, I think I'll be okay. I mean, I'm nearly 60. I think I'll be okay. Um, I don't have enough to take care of my kids and grandkids, so they'll have to figure it out on their own. I mean, if you've got $100 million, you've got generational, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you can, you can kind of weather that storm, but the majority of people who aren't broke, aren't filthy rich, they're, they're going to have to make some significant adjustments as to what the future looks like. So there, that, that's kind of my, uh, my rant about uh, where we are economically. And I don't know how to take that. Well, I mean, you do know how to take it. Well, I don't feel great well, I, about but, it. But t- well, I mean, just take it for what it's worth. I don't have an, a degree from anywhere right. on anything. I'm at the Hannah Pamplico Institute of Higher Economics, and, and truck body building is where I learned uh, what I know. But but I've, I've read a lot about it. I've tried to understand. I do have some smart friends, and we have some of these debates and discussions. And I, I just think trouble's headed our way. And and I don't know how to restore fiscal insanity, excuse me, fiscal sanity, without there being some pretty significant consequence um, coming. So anyway, th- there you go. Uh, hey, one of my favorite people, and I mean this sincerely, it's, it's not you, Red. It's okay. um, it's Jill Lewis, and Jill called me last week, I think, or texted me last week, and said, um, hey, we're doing a benefit. I know she calls me; she's doing a benefit. That's all the lady does <laughs> is help others. But Jill has somebody with her. I'll let you introduce her. But we're here on behalf of the PD Speech and Hearing. Um, they're doing a fundraising concert. 
Jill, I'll get out of the way. I know you don't need any marching orders and let you um, tell our listeners how they can help this event on behalf of PD Speech and Hearing be successful. And, um, and you can involve your guest here as you see fit. Thanks, Ken. PD Speech and Hearing Center is a wonderful center. They see everybody from newborns all the way up to 80, 90-year-old people. People who can't afford it can still come in. They will see them. They'll work everything out. They're really people who care about people. Really hard in today's day and age with everything that has gone on to do to have significant fundraisers because, as you say, money is tight. Health benefits are the other thing that is killing people. I mean, older people when they retire. They're twice as much. We knew they were going to be a lot, but I don't think any of us expected them to be as significant as they are now. So getting back to PD speech and hearing and helping people, um, it's hard for us to have a fundraiser. So I'm sure both of you remember the Woodies. I do. And um, he is just phenomenal. And they have put their group back together again. They're going to do a beach music fest on August 12th in the backside of Holy, Holy Smokin'. And we expect... For the people who always followed the Woodies, we expect a huge crowd. But the most important thing is to actually get it out and let people know about it. And so we got the Eagles, the E Street Band, and now the Woodies have broken up and gotten and gotten back together. <laughs> it's so cool. It is very cool. It's very cool. Okay, your guest is Lamika, please say something. <laughs> She's a new board member. For okay. Us. I'm a new board member. My name is Lamika Jackson. I actually went to PD hearing and speech while I was younger. Okay. Um, because they had a lot of speech problems. So I went there from three until five until I started Florence School District One and went through their program. So it helped tremendously with my family. So But it takes there. funding. I mean it, it takes does money take funding. and it takes charitable giving. It, does. it takes people with resources willing to give of those resources to make sure people like you can get the help Correct. you need and deserve. I was lucky because my grandfather paid, because my parents couldn't afford it at a particular moment, so my grandfather paid for it, paid half, and then we got funding on the other end. And here you are a board member. Yes. See, that's quite the <laughs> success story. So, Jill, when, where, and how? I mean, if the Woodies are getting back together, like the Eagles and the E Street uh-huh. Band, I mean, we, we need a big crowd there <laughs> raising a lot of money to make sure we can take care of these needs. Um, when, where, how can people find out more? Um, they can call the center, PD Speech and Hearing Center. Um, they can call me if they want to, 843-601-4440. It's August 12th. It starts at 6 o'clock. It is at Holy Smoking in the back. Um, we will have a tent if it rains, so it's rain or shine. And we really hope people come to this Beach Music Fest and enjoy the food. The food at Holy Smoking is great. And Jackie Travis does a phenomenal job. And the most important thing is, if you care, if you care about other people, if yourself, if you're a patient, please come and help us raise the money for the rest of the people who can't afford to come. What about VIPs like Dave Baker? I mean, if he wants to come and not sit with the regular folk, the peasants right. like, like yours truly. Call me. I mean, we have a VIP section. Well, okay. That's what I'm reading here. So you've got VIP packages. Right. You've got advanced ticket discounts. Right. Um, but, but if somebody doesn't, if they're not a VIP like me, um, and they they don't want to bother with advanced tickets. You can buy the ticket at the door. Yes, there is a general admission right. opportunity. It's twenty dollars a ticket. Right, guys, that's not a lot of money to see good good it, beach it's music. It's not I mean, a lot of money at all to see a good to go to a beach concert itself. 
you could never get in and out for less than a hundred bucks. So twenty dollars is nothing. No question about it. So that's Friday, August the twelfth. The Woodies are getting back together. That is in kind of the uh, is it the courtyard? Yeah, yes. holding yeah. spoken. Right. That, yeah. That's where it'll be, and um, food, beverage, a lot of fun, I would imagine. And um, and Jill, as usual, is um, trying to help these things become roaring successes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. your time. Hey, I got to tell the story real quick. So the the speech and hearing, you, you've heard this story before. I've told it, I think once or twice over the year. So I got a brother seventeen months younger than I, and for those who may not be surprised by this, I like to talk. Even even at an early age, I like to talk. And my brother, my mom thought had a problem. I mean, she thought he had some sort of deficiency. So my mother carried my brother, and my dad was talking. He can't talk. He does something wrong with him. But he, my dad was freaking out. So they carried my brother to a speech, uh, I guess a speech pathologist or speech clinician. And um, the, the, the doctor says, nothing wrong with him, but he's fine. And my mom said, well, he won't talk. I mean, we can't get him to be socially interactive with others. And uh, the doctor said, he's have a sibling. He's got a brother 17 months his senior. Uh, bring him next time. Let's see me next Tuesday. Bring So um, <laughs> my brother and I go to see the speech therapist, um, and we're sitting in a room. I mean, obviously, I don't remember this. My mom tells the story. My mom, my brother, and I are in the room with the doctor, and the doctor says, uh, my brother's name is Sammy, said, um, Sammy, where did you ride coming up here? I said, he rode in the back. <laughs> I, I, I'm the older brother. I'm the older brother. Um, Sammy, what do you like to eat for dinner? He likes hamburgers. I, mean, I, I, like, I like hot dogs. <laughs> the doctor was, get him away from yeah, him, yeah. And, and I'll assure you, everything will issue. But I mean, I thought I was taking care of my little brother. You know what? I was you impeding were. his pride. Yeah. I mean, he was my little brother, and I'm there to, to help mom take care of him. But yeah, the doctor said, get him away from him, yeah. and I'll promise poor, you. Poor kid didn't have a chance. Yeah, he didn't have a chance to say. To, and I've kind of still done that <laughs> for the, the balance of our life thank you jill it's great thank good you, good, good to see you, you. So we'll much. take a break we'll thank be back in just a few moments Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number we've kind of um we've not talked much today about the cathedral uh we touched on it a little bit this morning still one of the most fascinating subjects i've talked about over these airways rev and i've talked during a couple of breaks about you know should we commemorate Next Friday is our 10th anniversary. It's you. I mean, it's not about us. Trust me. It's not about us. It's never been about us. We're simply humble servants um, doing the job of the people, um, trying to give you something to entertain yourself with in the mornings. Um, and we're talking about, you know, being good or not being good and, and, you know, having a good day or a bad day. Or and, and Rev's a big baseball fan. I'm not as big as I used to be, but the Braves winning world championship, you know, it kind of got me back great. motivated and interested in, uh, in baseball and uh, one of the all-time greats passed away a couple of days ago, Vin Scully, at the age of 94. And I think he called his first Major League Baseball game at the age of like 23. I mean, it's some stupid number. And he, he was voice of the Dodgers for like 60-something years. I mean, it's, it's stupid when you throw these numbers around. Um, but I was listening yesterday to somebody on ESPN Radio, and I want to get your your take on this as a baseball guy, Rev. Um, you know, we, we debate is, is the Beatles or the Beatles the greatest rock and roll band ever or is the Stones or is the Eagles or, uh, you, you know, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, is, is Garth Brooks the biggest country star ever? I mean, all these are ballroom conversations. They're fun to have over I'm a subjective beer. Subjective to most. But I've not heard, okay, subjective is the greatest word you could bring up right now. I don't know that it's subjective when you say Vince Scully's the best baseball announcer that has ever lived. I didn't say the best announcer. I mean, I think that's up, up for debate. But when it comes to baseball, 
And I listened to ESPN Radio yesterday, and they were talking to the voice of the Yankees, who has a local radio show in New York City. Yeah, a local radio show in New York City, that's like having a national radio show. I mean, you know, millions of people listen every morning because it's just a densely populated metropolitan area. And if 2% of the people in New York City, you know, listen to your show, that's millions that's of people. A, a lot of ears. That's a lot of ears listening to a radio show. But he said, not only is Vince Scully the greatest baseball announcer ever, he's the greatest there ever will be. And you said you were listening to the Braves broadcast yesterday, and they raved. And not and not not just the uh, the quality of announcer, but the quality of person. And I know we do politics here, but there are some personalities that transcend the subject. And I think Vin Scully is one of those that deserves somebody doing a political radio show in South Carolina on a Thursday morning to recognize his contributions, not just to baseball, but to broadcasting. And he called his first game on the radio as like a 23-year-old as the voice of a Major League Baseball team. And he retired in 2016 at the age of 88 years old. That's not just a testament to, to, to his longevity in baseball, his understanding of the game. It's also a guy gets on the radio at 25 years old and stays there until he's 88 years old. And was kind of, and it's not, I guess, not really surprising, but I've heard so many broadcasters talk about him and tell stories about meeting him. And you're right, it's not just about that he was the best at doing what he did, but they all tell stories about him being as good as good as he is on the radio making the the, the calls for the Dodgers. Uh, he's as good or better a person. They said he always took time with broadcasters. They came when they came into Los Angeles to visit or whatever. Most people wanted to meet him. They wanted pictures with him. And he always made sure that if you came into the room that he was treating you like like gold. You the know? announcer for the Yankees said when you met Vin Scully, you thought it was about you. I mean, you wanted to meet him because you're a broadcaster and you want to meet the best there's ever been. So when you're meeting Vin Scully, he said all of a sudden he just turns it into, it's not about me, it's about you. I mean, what are you doing? How's your family? How old is your son? How old is your daughter? Oh, they go to this guy. Okay, I had a cousin to go. I mean, they just turned it in. He just, it never was about him. It never was about you kind of kissing the ring of the guy who's the greatest announcer ever. Um, it's more about, he just, he, he had a, he had a, a, an uncanny ability to kind of turn it around on, no, this is about you. I mean, you know, how long have you been doing what it is you do? Um, how much do you like? Can I ever help you? You know, of course you can. You're Vin Scully. <laughs> I'm looking for a break in radio. I mean, of course you can You can help me. But uh, I, once again, and, and I just think, I mean, we would be derelict in our responsibility as, uh, on the radio if we didn't talk about one of the true icons. I don't want to say pioneers of radio, but certainly one of the icons. Um, and, and I went back on YouTube, and I would encourage anybody to do this, that there's a, there's a cadence, that there's a, I mean, I, I still believe this. I think radio's your friend. And I think radio at times is your intimate friend, at times it's your distant friend. Um, I've always believed success on the radio is when somebody has us kind of turned down a little bit. I mean, we're in the background, and, and all of a sudden we say something that perks their curiosity, and, you know, and they kind of turn, what did that guy just say? Just, you know, did he yeah. just say such and such? So it goes from being a distant friend in the background to being a, a kind of an intimate friend and, and really paying attention to what you – well, I mean, there, there, how many Dodger fans weren't in Dodger Stadium but Vin Scully made them feel like they were. And I've always felt if radio can transport you to a place you believe exists. I mean, I think of Bob Fulton, you know, in the Gamecock football games. This is before the SEC, before they became, you know, kind of a prominent football, I don't say powerhouse, that's certainly an overstatement, but, but a player in that world. You know, they were a fledgling 
football program never on television except rare occasions. And I can remember turning that radio on and Bob Fulton. You know, Bob Fulton, I mean, he, he, he transported me to williams Bryce Stadium. I mean, he put me inside that stadium when he called the games. Um, I can't imagine how many Dodger fans, you know, were, were moved to Dodger Stadium by what Vin Scully did. And I would encourage you, and I mean this sincerely, go on YouTube and find a handful of three-minute calls that he made. Um, the Kirk Gibson home run, you know, probably one of the most famous against Dennis Eckersley. Uh, and then there, there, there's the um, – I mean, there's simple stories like Madison Bumgarner's pitching and Madison Bumgarner's wife killed a snake with an axe. And the, the snake had a baby rabbit in it. <laughs> You know, and he's calling a baseball game while he's telling while he's telling that story and the eloquence and, and the the stability of which he intertwines one story into another. It's like Bob Dylan bumps into John Lennon, bumps into Paul McCartney, <laughs> bumps into that other guy that we don't like anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That the consummate, yeah, the consummate right. wordsmith that all four of those people are. Vin Scully had kind of the um he the does ability. It on the fly. Yeah, just on the fly. I mean, he's probably got a note. I mean, I, I've done this long enough to know how you prepare to do this. Uh, obviously, I would never in a million years say, you know, I know what Vin Scully did because that's so far better than what I try to do. But but he probably had a note in a book somewhere that Bumgarner's wife killed a snake. I mean, he's probably on the field. Bumgarner says, uh, Scully says, how you doing, Madison? Doing good, sir. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. Anything going on? How's your family? Well, my wife killed a snake, man. And he tells that story. So Scully kind of mentally captures that. Gets back to the press box, makes a note. Bumgarner's wife killed, and it's kind of a fascinating story. And in the middle of a baseball game, he tells, and he turns it into a motivational speech. Um, you know, I guess the moral of that story is you just kind of got to keep shaking it off and moving on and, and talking about the um, the rabbit. Anyway, um, Vin Scully is a, is a national, was a national treasure. Um, and I was a Dodger hating Braves fan, but, but one, one of the great, great, radio broadcasters of all time um dead at the age of nine yeah, he's a little he's a old. little distant to us obviously sure. being west coast being dodgers and if you're a braves fan obviously but if you've <laughs> ever had an opportunity to be on the radio you and i have you know there are some that just flat out do it better than everybody else no and ben scully is one of those that just flat out did it better than anybody else Let's I, think, go to- I think chip carey told a story maybe on the broadcast yesterday for the braves and he talked about the you know going back in history with everybody in dodger stadium there to watch the game but with an am transistor radio held up to their ear so they could listen to ben scully's description of the game what, while they were there what bigger compliment could be paid to a radio broadcaster i'm at the game i'm watching the game on the field but it's not complete unless Vin Scully is telling me what I'm seeing in real time. That I mean, there is no. Cool. Oh, that is that is the ultimate compliment to a radio broadcaster. Let's go to the phone, Bobby in Hartsville. Hey, Bobby. Hey guys, uh, I was going to say I'm a, I'm a long uh, lifetime Dodgers fan, but after Ken's comment, I'm a long a lifelong Braves hating Dodgers fan. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Down south too. But, uh, Nah, it's about like some people say with Carolina and Clemson. I pull for Braves second, but I've always been a Dodgers, uh, a Dodgers fan. But uh, if if people get a chance, yeah, like you said, go to YouTube. That's that's one guy that uh, is truly gonna be missed. One of the ones that I remember, uh, not in live, but going back and watching it, was the uh, the Kurt Gibson 
uh, walk-off home run against the Oakland A's back in the, the 80s, and uh, he, he made that call. It was just a great call, great at-bat. I think the, the, the at-bat took like nine minutes of it, you know, just a lot of drama built up before Kurt Gibson hit that uh, home run. He was crippled. He could hardly make it around the, the bases, and uh, Vince Scully made that call, and uh, that was, that's one of the ones I really remember. No question about it. Thank you, Bobby. Yeah, I knew when you said Bobby on the phone. I knew Bobby was a, a big sports fan and a Dodgers fan. Uh, not a Dodgers fan, a Braves-hating mm-hmm. Dodger, Dodgers fan. But, I mean, the Dodgers had the upper hand. I mean, the Dodgers were a kind of a – I mean, they're in Holly, they're in Los Angeles, a big market, big media. The Braves were struggling. I mean, this would have been the early days of Turner's ownership. And the Braves had those ugly, kind of a weird blue-looking uniforms. Remember the kind of the aqua blue and then the dark blue? Oh, oh, and, yeah. and, you know, Bob Horner and Dale Murphy, and that was it. I mean, Phil Necro every fifth day, Bob Horner and Dale Murphy, and, and a bunch of ragtags. I mean, think of this. I'm talking about Trump in the political world. Ted Turner was kind of like that in the sports ownership world. Uh, managed the team. Got so mad with the manager, he fired him, and Ted Turner put a uniform on him and went down to the dugout and managed the team for like a game or two. Won the America's Cup with, with Courageous. Um, got drunk at the um, at the ceremony. They disbarred him or disbanded him, told him he couldn't come back anymore. Not disbanded, disbarred. He's not a lawyer. What would he be called? <laughs> uh, kicked him out. Yeah. I mean, just kicked him out of the club and said, you can't come back anymore. You could get too inebriated. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, we may try to do this. I know it's a political show, but it's a radio show. And I think any time one of the radio greats, I mean, we paid obvious respect to, to Rush Limbaugh because he's one of the greats in the same genre of what we do um, here, but I think Vin Scully, I mean, if you've ever had, and Rev has, I mean, Rev's been on the radio a lot longer than I have, but if you've had a chance to do this and express yourself as eloquently or not as you're able to, that there are some that just stand out. And I think Vince Scully uh, absolutely stands out in the way he, uh, once again, I believe this, Rev, this is kind of an interesting analogy I'll make. I think baseball, I think God created baseball so people could talk to one another. Really? I think the baseball game's the backdrop. It's the beer and the peanuts and the hot dog and you and I sitting there, That's you and your kid, cool. you and your wife, uh, you know, just kind of sitting there watching the game, talking about life, talking about politics, talking about music, talking. I, I believe that. I think God invented baseball so people could gather and talk to one another about things other than baseball. Baseball is kind of a numbers game, 714, 755, 406, 56. Uh, game hitting streak so you know baseball fans know those numbers as kind of benchmarks and milestones of the game but i think baseball games are played so people can get together and talk to one another about things other than other than baseball let's take a break i may ask rev to do this we may try to find a vin scully call and um and just pay our proper respects not to a baseball uh person but to one of the great great radio broadcasters in the history of radio back in a minute for Henry Aaron. So the confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now. So we'll see what Downing does. Al at the belt delivers, and he's low, ball one. And that just adds to the pressure. The crowd booing. Downing has to ignore the sound effects and stay a professional in pitchers' games. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive in the deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. 
baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. As Aaron circled the bases, the Dodgers on the infield shook his hand, and that was a memorable moment. Aaron is being mobbed by photographers. There, there are just some people that do it better than everybody else. I mean, who, who better than Vince Scully to call Henry Aaron's 715th home run? We touched on it a little bit yesterday. I think David brought it up about Buckner and, and House and some of the others. But um, but once again, Vince Scully, one of the great, great, great baseball. No, not one of. Let me back up. I mean, I think I can say with clarity, the greatest baseball announcer that has ever lived and many believe will ever live. That's, that's kind of unfair to who is to come. I mean, there may be somebody coming down the road. But, Rev, I mean, you've been in radio a long time. That's radio at its best. I mean, that's radio in its finest hour, in its finest moment, providing the greatest service radio could ever provide because Vince Scully put you in Fulton County Stadium. Um, I think it's ironic that Bobby calls, you know, and, and Al Downing was the pitcher for the Dodgers when Aaron hit the 715th home run. Doesn't matter if you're a Braves fan or a Dodgers fan. That's certainly not what that – what that clip is about one, one good um way you can tell uh, what we're talking about um if you got chills listening to that then just as if it was happening now and i did i mean just hear, well, I mean, hearing his description we talk a lot about music musical greatness uh you know free holes mad with pearl jam my mad with springsteen to me what you just heard is somebody riding Hotel California Stairway to Heaven yesterday and Born to Run at the same time. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's radio greatness. It's the pinnacle of this profession. And the guy did it for so long. I mean, just so long. I mean, I've always believed, uh, and, and I'm talking about this a lot in business, longevity is a big deal. I mean, the, why, why do I think the Stones are the greatest band ever and not the Beatles? I mean, I think the Beatles probably more talented. But the Stones figured out a way to just stay relevant and stay relevant. They just stayed there, stayed there, stayed there. Why do I love Brett Favre so much? Showed up for work every day, every day. Hung over, he still played. <laughs> you know, hurt, he still played. I mean, injured, you can't play, but he played um, so many. Cons- I just think there's a lot of credibility, a lot of street cred I give to someone who shows up every day and does it as well the days they don't really want to do it as they do the days they they really do want to do it. And I think Vince Scully, to do it that long and that well, deserves kind of a nod. And um, and he puts you in Fulton County Stadium, and you feel like you kind of experienced Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record. And, and leave it up, Scully, he brings so society in it. You know, a black man in the Deep South being cheered by white people. You know, there were a lot of social undertones. I mean, this was not 2022. This was the 1970s. Uh, when when the record was broken, so there's a lot of things kicking. Um, and Scully was probably as prepared for that moment as anybody in that stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the greatest of what he did was just being quiet. You know, when the, when the home run cleared the fence, how long did Vince Scully not say a word? Uh, a minute. 
You know, man, let's just let the moment, let people enjoy the moment. They don't need me talking over the moment. They know the all-time home run record um, just got broken, and that's that's when Scully gets out of the way. Yeah. And part of his genius is to just – I mean, I know when I speak, I'm real good at it. But at times, the, the silence of my voice is better than, you know, the uh, the inflection of my voice. 843-661037 is our number. Uh, we'll get back to the standard drumbeat of politics. But once again, um, we're heading to our 10th anniversary of being on the radio. We've got about 60 more to catch Vin Scully. You know, I think he was on the radio about what? Well, let me do the math at 25. So 75 would be 50 years and another 13 because I think he went off the air at 88. So that's um, 63 years, right? 63 years, like voice that. of the Dodgers or voice doing radio in some way, shape, or form, broadcasting baseball games. How long was Vin Scully? Voice of the Dodgers. Can you look that up? Yep, looking up right now. Okay, in I real do. time, we're doing yeah, this. I know, and got a kind of a slow Google connection here. I don't think Vin Scully's made Google mad, has he? But <laughs> no. I don't think Scully ever said he was a conservative it, or a uh, an America First. I mean, if he's an America First, you probably can't find Vin Scully if you Google uh, information about him. Uh, Sixty-seven seasons. Wow. And I think I heard so. So we want we want all kind of accolades for ten years. Yeah, I mean we're I forcing people to recognize our tenth anniversary. Um, we got another week to do this. Sixty-seven years, voice of the L.A. Dodgers. I, I think I think I read the other day that uh, a story that said when he started playing uh, or calling for the Dodgers, there were players playing that were born in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> yeah, he's got like a direct connection to Connie Mack. I mean, I think I read where like Connie Mack and he did. I was like Connie Mack. Connie Mack is Moses. I mean, Connie Mack was on the Ark. Connie Mack doesn't, but but no, he was so connected to. Um, I guess the the pioneers, the ultimate pioneers of the game of baseball. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Take a break. Get back to the um to the ranting and raving of American politics on the other side. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Call in, talk about whatever it is you choose to talk about. We've we've discussed a lot of different things this morning. We've moved around a bit. We actually got KT McFarland um, calling in at nine thirty about um, the visit to Taiwan by Nancy Pelosi. Kind of plays into one of these um, stories we talked about earlier this morning. Um, I've, the the challenge still stands for the never Trumper, for the traditional Republican. For the establishment Republican, with all due respect, and I mean this sincerely, at times I don't respect, but but with all due respect, and I mean that sincerely, name a candidate better than Donald Trump to run in 2024, not named Ron DeSantis. I'm not saying DeSantis is better, but I think there's a fair debate. I think there's an absolute debate to have between the Republicans in, in America deciding between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. DeSantis brings more negatives but he's less of a proven commodity, right? I mean, he's governed Florida. He's been highly effective in governing Florida, uh, as if you see the world as we do. I mean, if you see the world in a, in a kind of a, a pro-abortion, pro-taxing, uh, embracing green energy way, he's your mortal foe. He's your sworn enemy. But if you see the world in, a, in an America first kind of way, Ron DeSantis is um, kind of the standard bearer side of Trump. I mean, if it's not Trump, it's got to be DeSantis. But name another Republican, because I hear this a lot, and they got a bit testy with friends yesterday when they said that I was too aggressively pursuing um, convincing people for Trump to run again. In other words, um, we're going to lose the election if we listen to you radio show hosts who are trying to convince you know us that Donald Trump is the most formidable candidate to run in 2024. Give me an alternative. 
Tell me somebody better than Trump. I mean, once again, I'll give the debate about Ron DeSantis. I think there is a genuine and, and complicated debate, but it's sincere between DeSantis and Trump. How many votes do you believe? Uh, let me ask it this way, Rev. Who other than Trump, with an R beside their name, would get 75 million votes? You know what the alternate argument is? Yeah, but who other than Trump is going to vote or going to motivate 81 million Democrats to vote? But it's not the Democrats, guys. I mean, the Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat. Here's what happened in 2020. A lot of you establishment Republicans bailed. White educated females in particular. I mean, the data is implicitly clear. The white educated female voters said, I've had enough of MAGA. I'm going to give the adult, and I'm talking about an adult, an 80-year-old adult, (laughs) I'm going an 80-year-old senile man. I'm going to give him uh, the keys to the liquor cabinet and see if he can. And, um, and what do we say? Bring to those, people, those people that uh, bailed, we say this is on you. Yeah, of Inflation's course it is on you. What Gas mean? prices are on you. It's not on the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, who are you inclined to vote for? The Democrats. Of course. I mean, but if you're a Republican and you don't get your way, you, you take your ball and go home. But Trump is the repugnant one. But that's what I don't understand. And I've got many, many friends in that camp. They look at me as if I'm the problem because I'm advocating for Trump to run again. But they'll bail and go vote for the Democrat if Trump does or stay home, take a pass. I mean, that's impractical. That's irresponsible. That's just crazy. It's lunacy in action. Um, but, But once again, name a Republican running for president in 2024 that you believe could get 75 million votes not named Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. I mean, I, you, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, let, let's say J.D. Vance gives a speech, you know, and he wins the Senate seat in Ohio, and he gives a speech, and he takes off and runs like the wind. Um, okay, Vance would be a lot. I mean, that, that, Blake Masters. Um, Blake Masters accepted the Republican nominations for, um, for the primary with Gene's on. I don't know if you saw this or not. He had a suit on for a little while, but the majority of the time he had like an, an untucked shirt. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, an untucked shirt hmm. and jeans. Um, I mean, that's kind of where we're headed. And it's, and it's so interesting here because the one subset that we've really struggled with is young voters. Young voters find the Republican Party to be uninteresting, stale, pale, male is what I like to refer to it as, but it's uninspiring. It's uninteresting. It talks about, you know, Hey, did you read that article of the National Review? Did you read what George Will wrote in the Washington Post? Young people don't want to hear that. And for the first time, we have a chance to be the outsiders. In other words, if Woodstock were held today, the Trump voters would be first in line. We're kind of the counterculturist, right? I mean, we're, we're the rebels. We're, we're the renegades. We're the misfits. We're the ragtags. I mean, that's historically been, I mean, the counterculture element in American politics has historically been with the Democrats. Well, now this newfound energy within the Republican Party that I think could entice young people to want to be a part of it. Um, It's interesting to me how many more young people know about the cathedral than I did. You know, I I stumbled on it and think I found something that nobody knows anything about. The the reality is a lot of young people have read Yarkin. And, and, you know, when I say dark and light, they're going to yell, that's those guys from Silicon Valley. A lot of libertarian, you know, they blog and they they post things. They misspell words on purpose so the Google content moderators won't catch it. I mean, imagine the, the genius it takes to intentionally misspell a word. You went to Stanford. You, you graduated third in your class. You made 16 on the SAT, but you can't spell appropriate or you can't spell America first. You, you misspell it. Yeah, F-I-S-T-R. 
So the Google content moderators will let that article be prioritized and more and more eyes can see it. More people can can read it, be exposed to it, um, kind of scratch their head and say, wow, that kind of makes sense. I implored my friends yesterday to please read that article I sent to them. I mean, I sent everybody a copy of the article, um, a, a brief explanation of the cathedral. I know they didn't read it because they think I'm crazy. I'm not. I'll assure you I'm not. And, and the more we find out and expose the cathedral, the better we are to be successful in eventual elections to come. I'm talking about the cathedral. Rev says, I'm going to read uh, during the break. He said, hey, that article you sent me, um, and it's basically, I'll read it, the case against democracy. <laughs> I'm going to read it. Uh, I mean, imagine a Republican <laughs> being proud to sign up on an article, the case against democracy. This is in 2007. I mean, this is not recent. This is 15 years ago. And, and it's talking about red pill, blue pill. And the red pill solution is X, and the blue pill solution is Y. And they're, they're basically arguing um, that the blue pill solution would be the, um, the, the orthodox Democrat response. I'm not talking about party. I'm talking about system of government. I mean, the democracy would answer this question this way. Uh, that would be their perspective. Um, that would be the blue pill so let's go through a couple of um a couple of issues here. You ready? Um, the power structure of the West. I mean, what what I, I, I got to use you? So red pill, blue pill, and Dave's pill. What is Dave's pill? <laughs> when I say um, I'm gonna read the blue pill first, give you a chance to kind of gather your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So the power structure of the West. The blue pill is power in the West is held by the people who have to guard it closely against corrupt politicians and corporations. What what do you say about the power structure of the West? Mm. So you'd be close to the red pill because you're kind of a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I mean, you've you've sat beside one long enough. You're you're beginning (laughs) to to turn into one. So the red pill is power in the West is held by the civil service. That is the permanent employees of the state in any struggle between the civil service and politicians or corporations. The civil service wins the deep state, the bureaucrats. The one argument you can the make unelected. against term, the unelected bureaucrats, the, the, the one argument, the one genuine, convincing, compelling argument you can make against term limits is I'd rather have a crook that I vote for than one I don't. I'd rather have a power mongering um, uh, egomaniac that I vote for instead of one I don't. I would rather have someone trying to control my life in every aspect and corner that I vote for instead of one I don't. So the the red pill answer basically says the civil servants are in charge. The people that have entrenched themselves in the bowels of government, they do, they're not held accountable to the public. They don't run for office every two, four, or six years. All right, here's another. You ready? The extent of the state. Blue pill, the state consists of elected officials and their appointees, right? I mean, that's the way we believe. I mean, when I got elected to county council, I had about three or four or five appointees. When I got elected to lieutenant governor, I had about 20 or 25 appointees. I had people at the Department of Aging, people on the State House grounds. I mean, I chaired the State House grounds committee. The next thing I know, somebody's coming to me saying, hey, we need a bunch of light bulbs. Well, go get them. You chair the committee. I mean, the committee's got to meet. We've got to make expenditures. But they, but they were accountable to you, and yeah, you're yeah, accountable yeah. to the voters. No, that's right. That's that right. Works. So if I suck at my job, you vote me out of my job, or you throw me out if I do things wrong. Um, Never got voted out, just got thrown out. Hmm. The extent of the state, blue pill, the state consists of elected officials and their appointees. That's what we historically have believed. You know what the red pill is? Hmm. The state consists of those whose interests are aligned with the state. This includes um, non-governmental officials, universities, 
and the press, all of whose employees are effectively civil servants and side with the civil service in almost all conflicts. When has the press called out the FBI? I mean, think, think about the, the, the bombshell that should have been when we found out how corrupt the FBI. I'm not talking to every agent in the FBI. I mean, a full disclosure, I have no idea how many corrupt agents there are in the FBI. Certainly there are some. I mean, you'd be, you'd be a moron to not believe that some are tainted or corrupted, but I'm talking about the political hierarchy. Well, and it's not only not calling out, it's celebrating. I mean, look at Jim Comey. You know, isn't he writing books, making a lot of money? I mean, they love him. Of course they do. They celebrate him. They're all part of it. I mean, there, there's a Netflix documentary about that. The, the, it's basically um, Comey's the most honorable man in America. And we better be glad Comey was, well, Comey was loyal. Loyal to who? The cathedral. cathedral. That's exactly right. I mean, Comey had a chance to tell the truth or or be a loyalist, and he chose to be a loyalist um, to the cathedral. Last one I want to read here real quick. Got two more. Um, The danger of right-wing politics. The blue pill answer, which is the kind of the the standard answer of a democracy, is right-wing politicians and the ignorant masses who support them are a danger to democracy and must be stopped. That's a home run. I mean, that's hitting the nail precisely on the head. You know what the right? You know what the red pill says? Hmm. The cathedral says right-wing politicians are a classic democratic phenomenon. Domestically, they have little power and are mostly harmless. Their international adventures are destructive, but they are in, in, uh, inescapable consequences of democracy itself. Last one I want to read: the history of Western government. Blue pill. The present system of Western government is a result of adapting 19th century classical liberalism to the complex modern world. That stands to reason. You went to Harvard and and you asked a professor, hey, what is the history of Western government and sentence? That would be about the sentence he'd give you, talking about classical liberalism, the complex modern world, and the adjustments or adaptations that they've had to make. The red pill says Western governments today are clones of the quasi-democratic FDR regime whose best modern comparisons or leaders are like Mubarak, uh, Putin, wow, its origin, uh, its origin was the progressive movement, which broke classical libertarianism, then complained that it didn't work. So there's kind of a um, uh, comparing the cathedral to FDR, the New Deal, all with one, one with all, e pluribus unum. That's, that's kind of the mindset of, uh, or the argument they're trying to make against um, the blue pill. And uh, I'll say this for tomorrow, the future of Western government. Got a blue pill and a red pill on this um the future of Western government, and it is as radical as you can imagine and makes me want to exclaim it as loudly and proudly as I possibly can. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, I was just calling to talk about or comment on the uh, Republican other than Trump. So I like I like Tom Cotton, Christy Nome ticket. I'm a, a combat vet. Like me, I fought with Tom in Iraq. Also, too, I think the guys start picking up everything that comes out logical. I think in this next election, it's huge that he appeals to the uh, independent vote, like you guys kind of pointed out, as well as make inroads into that increasing Latin vote, as well as that black vote. And I think Tom can get it done. I haven't heard enough of him. I still kind of get worried about maybe some of that establishment stuff, but I'd like to hear more from those two, because uh, I think we all agree we need a candidate who is, is less divisive, less toxic. And to kind of go back to that Reagan thing, if you agree with somebody that 80% of the time, it's probably as good as you're going to get. So I'll hang up and let you come. Thank you, sir. That, that's a, that's an interesting uh, example. Um, I don't know that we need anybody less toxic. Wow. I mean, how stupid is that? 
I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm a guy who knows politics. I understand politics to some degree. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a um, I'm an aficionado, but but I understand politics. I understand what it takes to win elections. I understand what it means to govern. I, I mean, I, I you know I accepted some of those responsibilities, and I think I've been pretty good at it. I didn't keep the best records, and I paid a big price for that. But I think I understand government. I think I understand how to succeed in government. I think I understand how to um, get elected in government. I know I understand that. So I, I'm just, it, it would, I mean, it's almost the, the most irresponsible thing I could say as someone who professes to have an understanding of government that we don't need somebody less toxic. I mean, that's against every conventional wisdom there's ever been in the history of American politics. This guy wants somebody that's more toxic. He doesn't want less toxicity. He, he believes that. Well, but the point I'm trying to make is it's hard to explain. If there's a confrontation coming, it's going to be toxic, right? I mean, if, if nobody's going to lay down their sword. I mean, I get the 80% argument. And I think in normal operating procedures, 80% is the number. I mean, if you're 80% in agreement with me, you're my friend. Let, let's go have a beer. Let's try to work this out together. I just don't know that that's where we are in America today. I like cotton. I mean, the, the one uh, the one question I would have about cotton is his interventionist tendencies. He's an American. He's a member of the military. Um, he makes that a big part of his um, narrative. His, um, his campaigns are centered around, uh, I think he's a Harvard graduate, if I'm not mistaken, highly educated, uh, incredibly smart, very capable. Um and he's not toxic. I mean, the caller is exactly right. And, and look, we're debating this. I don't know the answer. The caller didn't say, I know I'm right here. We're having a genuine, sincere debate. I think Hawley and Cotton are just a step below DeSantis. I think J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, if they get to be in the Senate, you got kind of the four horsemen. you got Hawley, you got Cotton, you got Masters, you got Vance. I mean, I think those four could saddle up with one another and, and begin – affecting change in a major way. And I know it sounds silly when somebody who says or professes to know something about politics says we don't need somebody less toxic. That doesn't make any sense. But my gut tells me I'm right. My instinct tells me that being toxic isn't that bad right now in American politics. The one thing I'll give Cotton uh, credit for, he understands as clearly as Trump did the dangers of China. Cotton is probably as anti-China as anybody in uh, the Congress. He's a senator from Arkansas. Once again, I think he's a Harvard graduate. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's a Harvard graduate, uh, decorated member of the military, um, a, a, a man of accomplishment, um, kind of a plain-spoken um, Southerner. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think Cotton, I mean, if we're going to argue that there's somebody out there, Cotton's as good a, as an example. I mean, I don't think he could get 75 million votes Do the do, do the Trump, does the Trump crowd show up in 2024 and vote for Senator Tom Cotton? Some do. All won't. Um, does, does the Trump crowd come and vote for DeSantis in 2024? More do. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all, but the majority do. Cotton would be a little bit of a fall off. I get what the caller's saying, and I'm cutting against the grain here. And maybe I'm just trying to be uh, more contrarian than even I am. But to your earlier point, 75 million votes. Who can drive that? Can Cotton, Cotton? get 75 million votes? Because I think 75 million would win. I mean, I really believe that. I think because of absentee ballots, the early ballots, the Zuckerberg money, I think, you know, 81 million is an astronomical number of votes to get. I don't think he got 81 million. I mean, they certified an election that gave Joe Biden 81 million votes. 
Is there another Republican that could get 75 million and would 75 million win? That's an interesting. Now, we've never give Cotton a chance. We don't know what Cotton would do on the national stage. I mean, he's been a frequent guest to meet the press and face the nation. It's normally foreign affairs. And it's normally military Wake Up Carolina. related. Yeah, it was on Wake Up Carolina. And that let me know he has an interest in whatever comes next. Uh, because if you start plundering around South Carolina, you're obviously interested in uh, the Republican presidential cycle. Um, okay, I'll give you that one. I mean, that, that, there, there's a that there's a name that that could get 75 million votes. I don't think he would, but I think he could. And there's no question he's less toxic. One thing he did um, yesterday was uh, introduce legislation that's going to disallow China from buying so much farmland. I'll explain that on the other side. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I'll get to that bill in just a couple of minutes. The one that Senator Cotton introduced yesterday about China buying farmland. Some of the China interests buying a lot of farmland in America. There are 14 states that prohibit this, but I think he wants some federal legislation that better police um, some of the Chinese government and interest by purchasing farmland or land in general all over the country. Uh, we, we, we talked a little bit about foreign policy recently because we did talk about Senator Tom Cotton. And every time he's on uh, over the airwaves, he's talking normally about foreign policy and, um, and, and military actions and endeavors and whatnot. Um, we have with us a special guest, author of a new book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. She was President Trump's former Deputy National Security Advisor, former Assistant Secretary of State, and Pentagon spokeswoman KT McFarland. Miss McFarland, good morning. How are you? It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'll ask this. What exactly is this administration, not the former administration, but what exactly is the previous administration's stance and standing as it relates to Taiwan? Well, the Trump administration did a couple of things. One, it, we increased our technological ability vis-a-vis China. We had a trade war with China, which I think we won. We also um, increased the defense budget to stand up to China militarily to match them. And we took efforts to secure the supply chain of critical goods coming from China to the United States. All that was terrific. The Biden administration has unfortunately reversed all of that. In what way? I mean, when you say it, I mean, to me, it's confusing messaging. I mean, uh, Speaker Pelosi says one thing. The White House says something um, separate of that. So, so, so where is the point of confusion that, that could or could not mislead the American public? Well, I tell you, if, if you're confused, I'm confused. I've spent 50 years as a national security expert. I have no idea what their China policy is. You have the Speaker of the House of the same political party as the White House. She's announcing she's going to Taiwan. And then the White House is saying, not a good idea. The president comes out and says, not a great idea at this time. And then the Chinese said, don't you dare come. So, of course, then they're boxed into a position. Of course she has to go, um, because otherwise it looks like China is defining American national security. And they can't have that. So, but what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish by this? Um, I'm not sure. I think they were, I guess, they thought they were standing up to China and being tough. But they're not. They've cut back on American military spending, particularly about the Navy. They've done nothing about the supply chain crisis. They've, um, as Tom Cotton has said yesterday, they're allowing China to buy up farmland throughout the United States. And even in more scary, they've allowed China to buy land right next to critical American military in, in facilities. And they've allowed, um, there's another example, is that the Chinese steal a lot of American technology. The Trump administration put in a unit in government to monitor the stealing, to catch the spies. 
The Biden administration dismantled it. So they talk tough about China. And Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan, which is talking tough about China. And yet they don't, deeds never match the words. So maybe they got a photo op out of it. But I don't think they've gotten any real improvement in America's ability to stand up to China. And China will retaliate at some point. Ms. McFarland, you have a career and expertise that exceeds most of, of all of our listeners, obviously, and in matters related to national security and foreign affairs. To the, to the commoner, to the average American Republican primary voter, why should we be interested in Taiwan? And I say that because... From, from my, I perceive there to be a fairly significant strain of anti-interventionism in the America First political movement. It's not isolationist, despite what the media tries to portray it as, but it is somewhat non-interventionist. Why should the America First Republican primary voter be so interested in um, what happens in Taiwan? There are a couple of reasons. One, I am an anti-interventionist, and I've gone, I'm a traditional Republican foreign policy expert going back to the 1970s. I broke with the traditional Republican interventionists over the forever wars in the Middle East. So I agree with you. We've spent trillions, we've wasted trillions in fighting wars that we could never win in the Middle East and building, trying to build nations and democracies in the most backward part of the world. Meanwhile, we took our eye off China, and for 20 years the Chinese have been building up their military, their technology, and their economy, and they did it with us doing nothing about it. The second thing is, why does Taiwan itself matter? Well, it matters because it's a democracy and it should be an independent nation. But what it matters economically, I mean, do you have a cell phone? Do you have a car? Well, all those things run on on chips, microchips, microprocessing chips, and guess where they're all manufactured? in Taiwan, in China. We Americans invent the technology, but then we don't make that stuff here. They make it in Taiwan. So if you think there's a supply chain crisis over baby formula, um, just think of what a supply chain crisis is if Taiwan, controlled by China, if they decide they're not going to send microprocessing um, chips to the United States and other parts of the world. We'd have a really serious world economic problem. That is so well explained. Ms. McFarland, thank you for your time. Have a great day, ma'am. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's kind of an interesting, uh, very insider voice on uh, on Wake Up Carolina this morning. KT McFarland. Well, I said KT Oslin. I'm KT McFarland. <laughs> I told Rev KT Oslin's coming on in a minute. He said, no, dude, she's saying 80s ladies, I think. You're talking about somebody else here a different in, in a second. Um, but there is a kind of a squaring up that America first has to do. And I think Cotton, I mean, I still got that in my head. In the previous caller talking about Tom Cotton, that's kind of an interesting um, argument. And I think it's a very, probably the most legitimate person you could propose as someone other than DeSantis and Trump that could engage the America first voter where they are and convince them that I am um, a reasonable alternative. Um, DeSantis has already done that. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. DeSantis has cleared that hurdle. Um, can... Can Cotton clear that hurdle? Can Hawley clear that hurdle? I think they can. Um, she, Ms. McFarland was talking about what um, what Tom Cotton did yesterday. There are there are 14, uh, 14 states, might be 15, I think it's 14, states in America that basically um, disallow foreign ownership. Uh, well, the foreign ownership restrictions. I'm going to say they disallow. They restrict certain elements within foreign governments to invest in properties. Uh, it's not that, hey, where, where were you born? In China, you can't buy this house. You can't buy this land. But they are that there are 14 states in America 
that have some level of foreign ownership restriction on property rights as it relates to foreigners and foreign governments. Um, there is absolutely no federal restriction on any of that. So the amount of U.S. private farmland or, or whatever sort of um, uh, residential property or commercial property, um, some of these governments can own as much as they like if they're not in these 14 states. Well, according to the USDA, China and Chinese investors um, increased their holdings in agricultural property in America from 13,720 acres in 2010 to 352,140 in 2020. That number, from what I understand, is north of a half million today. I mean, this is in 2020. So in a decade, um, Chinese investor holdings of U.S. agricultural land has gone from 10,000, excuse me, 13,720 acres to 352,000, add another 150 or so. So we're at about 500,000 acres of land. Now, I don't have any idea. I mean, I've read the stories. I've heard the stories. Um, I've heard some of the debates about the stories. Is this land a matter of national security? I don't care. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I am a nationalist. I'm unapologetically an America firster. I would not allow Chinese investors and interests to purchase land in America, period. I understand capitalism. I understand a global economy. I understand uh, the, the unfettered access to the free market. I get that. I mean, that's what we've celebrated. That's what the red, white, and blue stands for. I get that. I don't give a damn. I would not be in favor of allowing Chinese investors or Chinese operatives to invest in agricultural or commercial property in America, for that matter. Um, does it disallow freehold? Let's say freehold inherits a farm, and he's got 500 acres, and it's near a naval base, and freehold could sell that land for $5,000 an acre, but the Chinese offered him $20,000 an acre. I mean, are we going to exclude freehold from making a more significant profit in the free market for something he owns? Yes, we are. Absolutely, we are. And that goes back to J.D. Vance. What are we going to do when we get the levers of government? Are we going to forsake some of our um, hunches and our, I mean, the, the way we normally see things? No, no Republican wants to exclude freehold from selling his land for as much as he can. But I think we're going to have to make some conscientious adjustments on what is okay and what's not. And I think that goes back to Vance. And, and I think, you know, Tom Codd's doing this. I mean, Tom Codd is basically saying to Freehold, I mean, I don't care what your land's worth. You're not selling it to the Chinese because this is a matter of national security. Um, respecting, understanding, appreciating the urgency that we must deal with China. Uh, Trump calls it, what is it, China? Uh, the, way, the way he says China. it is uh, China. There you go, China. I got to watch China. Um, so these um, these 36 states that don't have any sort of foreign ownership restrictions will be restricted. Joe Manchin is actually a co-sponsor of this bill. This is kind of interesting that Tom Cotton, um, Joe Manchin, there are, I mean, there are a lot of senators that are a part of this, but, um, but it's going to really put to test how passionate you are about capitalism and the free market. I mean, are we going to exclude? I mean, an American property owner has an offer of X from an American business person, and he has a, an offer of X times 300% from a foreign investor, China in particular. Um, I just think you got to deal with China differently. I'm sorry. I just think you do. Um, when I was asked about the seventh congressional race, and I went down and met with some uh, people in charge of kind of candidate recruitment, 
And, you know, they asked me philosophically where I stand on China. And I said, you know, I'm philosophically opposed to tariffs, except when it comes to China. I think he got to deal with China differently. And one guy at the end of the table, he's one of these purists, probably went to Harvard, just graduated from college. He said, so you're for tariffs with his pen in his hand. So you're for tariffs. That's a big demerit. I said, with them, I am. You damn right with them, I am. I mean, I think China's a different animal. I think you got to deal with them fundamentally different than you do some of the other antagonists. I don't want to say mortal foes. I think China is much more than an antagonist. I think they're anti-American. I think they see us as the preeminent superpower. I, I think the one thing China agrees with America on, they want one preeminent superpower in the world. They don't want it to be America. They want to be the sole superpower on the planet. And if we're not careful, because I'm telling you what they are, Rev, I hate to say this because it's so un-American. They're smarter and tougher than we are. Their government is smarter tougher and shrewder now it's easy to be a communist and be tougher smarter and shrewder but we've got to shore up democracy i mean if we're going to take democracy and put it in competition with communism in a shrewd smart savvy way china runs their nation we got to be better i mean democracy has some shortcomings we allow incompetent people to vote we allow dumb people to vote we allow lazy people to vote that's not what they do in china they just simply do not. They probably have, uh, I'd be a parochial elitist, but but it would be elitist nonetheless. Um, but but if we're going to be a democracy, we just got to get better at it. We got to get more responsible. Well, we got to get more informed. What well, we got to get more vigilant about protecting our democracy. And um, somebody said something yesterday, and I hate, I hate to say this. They said the smartest thing you've ever said on the radio is when you said everybody shouldn't vote. I mean, I can't believe mm -hmm. I, you know, I say some of these things that are so, but I believe it. I mean, I'm sorry. I believe now that democracy is hard because lazy, incompetent, dumb people get to vote. And their vote counts as equal to the most competent, the hardest working, the most diligent, the most um, smart, the smartest guy. Uh, his vote counts one and somebody <laughs> else's vote counts one as well. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Seems like the last hour in the last couple of weeks, the calls have kind of dried up and and, and gone away. Uh, people are probably out busier than they are early in the morning, not able to call in. Uh, but it, it certainly makes my work harder. Well, um, anyway. Does it seem to you, because we, we know what we're, the discussion about recession and negative GDP growth, okay, we hear all that talk. But I haven't seen lately like a drop in activity out there. It seems like traffic is up everywhere I go. You know, you got to wait through a couple of light changes. I mean, am I imagining this or is it? That's a good like, question. At least That's the, a good la question. the last few weeks, it just seemed like that for some reason. Um, I can't answer that. I mean, I, I do know that we're driving less today than we did this time last year. I mean, I think the, the numbers are pretty clear on that. I mean, I'm not, it's not significantly less, but, um, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. And um, and once again, Rev, that's probably the best way to, to observe. I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. But the numbers, I mean, you can take numbers and what do they say about statistics? I mean, you know, statistics and damn lies. And, uh, and I don't know. I mean, I'm like you. I tend to pay attention to what's going on. I mean, a few months ago, I made the observation that, that it seemed like traffic was down. You know, I, I went out uh, to, to pick up some food at a restaurant and i noticed there were no cars in that parking lot or any of the other parking lots that i was observing and i thought "Ooh, wow this is this was telling me something uh, but then it seems like the last couple of weeks 
I don't know why. It's just like there seems to be more traffic. It takes longer to get places. And uh, and then you, if you go somewhere, you have to wait in a longer line. The only thing we can reasonably conclude, and I think, I mean, I don't care where you go or what you believe in, you, you got to agree that if a bag of groceries and a tank of gas cost you $100 a year ago, and that same bag of groceries and tank of gas today has cost you $200, there's less money to do other things with, right? I mean, where yeah. people are going, what they're doing, I don't know. I mean, I was at the beach a couple of weeks ago. It looked as crowded as it ever has been. But but the, the fundamental reality is this. If, if what cost you $100 a year ago cost you $200 today, that's $100 less you have to do other things. Now, if you're making a million dollars a year, it doesn't matter. But, but most people aren't making a million dollars a year, and they have to account for uh, that, that, you know, price increase and inflation, uh, the relationship to inflation. Is, is that affecting people? I mean, I, I'll confess, I haven't changed my lifestyle. I mean, I'm frustrated. I'm bothered. Um, I, I, I cuss when I fill my truck up with gas. Uh, you know, I feel like yelling MAGA when I go to the fresh market at Pauly's Island. I have this, I mean, I'm telling you, when I go to the fresh market at Pauly's Island, and everybody gets out of a Volvo or a, uh, you know, one of these other European sedans, um, and they got a poodle in their hand, skinny jeans, and a Patagonia vest. I want to walk in uh, Fresh Market to Polly's and just yell MAGA. I mean, I just want to walk up behind the, uh, the the rich, educated, excuse me, let me back up, the affluent, white, educated female with a Patagonia sweater vest. I just want to walk up behind her and yell MAGA. You'd scare her to death. I mean, I just do. I want to yell. I just want to run around <laughs> the Fresh Market at Polly's yelling MAGA, 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 and I want to put Trump stickers on every Volvo, BMW, and Mercedes <laughs> in the parking lot. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, I'm working in Mount Pleasant. Give me a handful of them MAGA stickers. I'll put them on those Maseratis. And, and <laughs> hey, this, this is a little off topic, but it's kind of interesting, very interesting to me at least. Have y'all read all the details and uh, about the occurrence of us killing that latest terrorist, Awa? Why were we we or whatever his name is? <laughs> I've read some of that, thing, Mike, but there, there was a report that he died of asthma two years ago. Uh, well, I don't know that. That's all. That, let me tell you something. The interesting part about this, he they surveilled him for months. They killed him on his balcony. Okay, he lived in a very posh neighborhood in Iran or whatever city in Iran, and. Uh, and they observed his morning habits after prayer. He would come out onto the balcony. They killed him with R, an, an R9X Hellfire missile, which has no explosive ordnance in it. This is the damnedest thing. Look it up. R9X Hellfire. Right before it hits its target, it pops open six steel blades about three feet long, and it literally, they're spinning. It literally shreds whatever it hits. So this guy is was literally cut into pieces, and his wife and child, who were less than 30 feet away, were not injured whatsoever. The people who live in that complex said all we heard was a thud. That's how sophisticated we are. We took out that last um, that last big general. We took him out the same way by sending one through the roof of his car. Interesting. I know it's off topic, but people like me find this uh, very interesting. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Good I appreciate it, my man. Yeah, it's a good way to wrap up the show. I read the same thing, but also read a report where he died of asthma a couple of years I ago. Saw that. Yeah. See, I got to spread these conspiracy theories. <laughs> if I don't, my audience will drop and, and go away, and I'll be unemployed. <laughs> Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.